Hello and welcome to Podcasting as Praxis. I'm James, my pronouns are they and them. I'm Jamie, my pronouns are he and him. I'm Rob, mine are he and him. And I'm David, my pronouns are also he and him. And joining us tonight, we have a very special guest, Casey, a streamer and video game influencer. Hello, Casey. Hello, I'm Casey and my pronouns are she, her. Awesome. Um, yeah, no, it's good to have you on. Uh, the reason we've got Casey on tonight is we're going to be talking about the video games industry, specifically the video games industry under capitalism. Uh, that's a very big topic. Um, is, a sorry, of... is there a fucking other one? <laughs> yeah. Somebody tell me what the North Koreans are up to these days as regards video games. <laughs> Do they have video games in North Korea? Surely they must. Do they Surely. have? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Of course they've got video games in North Korea. No, but I mean more like, you know, homegrown, like, have they, do they develop their own, I wonder? Like, is there a thriving North Korean video games industry? I'm sure Like I'm some sure insane knockoff, like, like uh, a North Korean Game Boy version with, like, just like just weird rip-off games. That would actually be quite cool. I'd be quite into that. I would, too. You'll have to phone Joe Rogan and get him to ask his mate. <laughs> <laughs> What, Dennis Rodman? Oh. <laughs> Shaking my head, Rob. But yeah, so this is, a, this is a very big topic. There's a lot of angles to consider. So we're going to keep the, the news nuggets brief tonight um, and just do a couple of them. And then we'll kind of weigh in and we'll see how we get going with it. Um, so to, to start us off, uh, I, I don't know about the rest of you guys, but I am feeling terrible. Um, I am physically just a total mess. Um, I'm suffering side effects from ADHD medication, which means I've had to come off of it. And today I am achy and painful and sore. But if you guys feel the same way, you don't need to worry because Mark Zuckerberg is going to save us all. Oh, fuck oh, off. Not a, okay. <laughs> Can't this cunt just let me fucking exist in this pit of fucking despair alone with legs? Because I was like climbing this morning and quite frankly, I wasn't doing too hot. So if he can work out a way to, you know, improve my grip strength without logging in, I'm very, I'm all ears. Tell me, Mark, what what, what can my, I do? My personal hope is that he's going to karate me into an early grave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be, that'd be slightly more realistic. So um, <clears throat> headline from Engadget, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is him and his, his wife, yeah. are building mm -hmm. a massive GPU cluster to, direct quote, Cure, prevent, or manage all diseases. Oh my god. Okay. Uh, cool. How how is rendering triangles gonna help solve cancer? So <laughs> the idea is they're gonna have over a thousand high-end graphics processors that will try to create a virtual biology simulator. Is it is, right. it, is are we talking is this like crunches at home? Is that are we are we doing like the new version? I mean, it's it's sort of ambiguous. They describe it as um, a bold new generative AI initiative oh, today. Oh, fuck off. Excellent. <laughs> Fucking know. brilliant. The group is funding and building a high-end GPU cluster that will use AI to create no, predictive models won't. of healthy and diseased cells. Which, um, which like, country is going to have to go without drinking water for this project? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Somehow Jamie, Norway. Jamie, you are telepathically ahead of us. Uh, <laughs> so... Yeah, no, they, they've just, it's a massive puff piece about basically how they're going to train, like, this is this is the actual nuts and bolts of it. They're going to train AI large language models on human cells. And... <laughs> what? They, <laughs> yeah, what? They, 
they expect the AI models to draw insights and conclusions beyond even the capabilities of a team of human experts, which is my favourite line in the entire what? thing. Accelerating word... climate change so we can have a robot say, mitosis is <laughs> fuck off. The word expect in that sentence was either doing a lot of heavy lifting or very revealing. Yeah, that was... <laughs> There was a there was a piece in in the news here. Uh, uh, I think this week or last week, I can't remember. But that like in the last year or two, like the Swiss glaciers have retreated by ten percent, which is crazy. Like it's genuinely like certain places are now incredibly dangerous because like the rock itself is becoming incredibly unstable. And can I just say, you know, thank you for burning more CPU power to figure out what does cell do. Great, uh, thanks, Rob. Rob. Rob, it's GPU power. Get it right. I don't fucking care. They're, you know, the, the, the bleep bloop thing. That make them games go. <laughs> um, so Chan lists other examples of how LLMs, that's uh, large language models, could tackle biomedicine's problems. Direct Is it quote. by making up a bunch of horse shit? <laughs> oh, Jamie, that's, that's, qu that's quite a synonym. <clears throat> AI models could predict how an immune cell responds to an infection, what happens at the cellular level when a child is born with a rare disease, or even how a patient's body will respond to a new medication, the founder and co-CEO said. We hope that this, will, this collaborative effort will generate new insights about the fundamental characteristics of our cells. Um, but yeah, so, so there you go. It's cool. Oh, They're going to Christ. simulate the human being. It's going to come back and tell us to kill the disabled, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, like, the, you know, I'm glad we, we gave, you know, this this new type of over, capitalist overlords, the you know, world-changing amounts of money and power and influence over our entire society. And what they do with it is this. It's really good. Mm. I really like it. This is, you know, nobody ever tell me that capitalism is the best, best way to distribute scarce resources. The efficiency just boggles the fucking mind right now. Oh, just the resources what? aren't scale, so if you can pay for them, Rob. <laughs> Shut up, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> What's your second news nugget? Then it better be better than this one. <laughs> um, you called it, Jamie. Critics are furious that Microsoft is training AI by sucking up water during drought. Um, it's about basically Microsoft data centers because <laughs> I figured, you know, it, you know, it's not enough that we are we are getting this bullshit AI simulation of a human cell to try and solve all disease. Oh no, um, by nature, it's going to basically drain all the drinking water in wherever it's built and you know contribute to greater drought, as is evidenced by Microsoft's data centers in West Des Moines, in Iowa, um, which I think that's. Demonic, no, no, yeah. no, no, we're going to let that stay because that's the respect the place deserves. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, Casey, this yeah. is your introduction to so, learn that I can't pronounce stuff for toffee. Oh, um, I thought we were just doing like. If Americans are going to call the place yeah. I live Glasgow, then <laughs> Des Moines, get it up, you. Americans and Rob. <laughs> just, just try to pronounce everything as wrong as possible so that if you get pulled up on us, you didn't make a mistake, you made a joke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, a good, that's a good strategy. If only I'd adopted that 200-odd episodes ago, then <laughs> Yeah, what a shame you've been found out since then by your own admission. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I, though I will say, just, just curiosity, Rob, what's the capital of Scotland? It's, it's, I don't know, it's a place. It's a Monroe, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Technically correct. Yeah. 
Rob and the Americans calling it Edinburgh will never get old. Anyway. I do, oh, um, no, 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 no. I don't actually do that. I just can't pronounce where David lives. I can't, I can't pronounce the other places. Fine. I just am now, go on, you know, now <laughs> fuck you. Please. <laughs> That's what people in Edinburgh call it. <laughs> Maybe maybe we need a large language model to help us do our pronunciation. Maybe that would be the, the way to go with this. Just coming up with increasingly obtuse pronunciations of Glasgow, um, none of which are accurate. That'd be fantastic. We have a Rob. <laughs> we have Rob at home. We got, yeah, we got large language model at home. It's Rob. Um, but yeah, so basically, like they um, they, they set up this uh, you know data center to train OpenAI's Chat GPT four. Um, which Microsoft uh, are backing, essentially. It's the most uh, most advanced publicly available large language model. Extreme jerk-off motion happening off-camera here. Um, but this, is, this has got a little wrinkle to it because um, as they were sucking up all that water, it happened in the midst of a more than three-year drought, um, further taxing a stressed water system that's been so dry this summer that nature lovers couldn't even paddle canoes in local rivers. Like the yeah. rivers have been going to see those right bigger problems than people canoeing or not canoeing. Well, no, it's just yeah. it, it, it's just like um, you know exemplary of it essentially. Like the rivers are reaching their very bottom beds, and these guys are still hoovering up water to cool their AI, you know, data centers. It's fine. Mm. It's, it's good. What Bill Gates should do is befriend Tom Selleck and use the water that he borrowed from California during a drought to like <laughs> water his trees or whatever. <laughs> But yeah, so this is this might sound like it's particularly local, but it's really not. Um, before the AI boom, arid places like Arizona were already facing water strain from data sensors, uh, centers. Excuse me. Um, this has been an ongoing thing. Wherever they pop up a data center, it needs a metric fuck ton of water. In order, that's a, that's an actual you know precise value in order to like cool all of the, the GPU renders. And so they just, you know, they just pass um, legislation locally to enable them to just suck it all up. And if you're a farmer, or God forbid, you're just like a, a regular everyday residential peon, then good luck to you. Um, you know, you come dead last. I mean, America and the American South in particular is like incredibly interesting as regards like water management, as in the sense of just they don't do it. Like there's these really weird like conflicts at the moment, like state between interstate ones between I think like California and Arizona about like the water of the Rio Grande and taxes and stuff, where everybody's just like yoloing the water out of, out of everything and it's it's not going very well. It's a really fascinating thing that you know oh. harbors good things for the future, when <laughs> when we finally ride our doof wagons. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, to give you have they, idea, have they considered building a data center in like Ferguson, and they can just pump sludge through it and see if that works any better? Yeah, no, just so put, put them in the UK. This, just, just, just let, let poison quite... the data center. <laughs> so this isn't this isn't actually mentioned in the article, but I happen to know this. The water the water they use has to be pretty sterile in order that it doesn't fuck up all the cooling fins and all the rest of it by microparticles or corrosion or similar. It's got to be very close to, like, distilled water or, you know, specially treated, essentially. Well, so they can so just the get fuck themselves a fucking, America? Get themselves a fucking Brita jug like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> just a massive Brita jug right over the data yeah. centre. Yeah. I think, really, if, you, if you, your concern is you, you're putting together all these, like, GPUs that are going to get super hot. If you build your data center in Arizona, you're just spitting in the face of God. Yeah. <laughs> I 
I've just got that Peggy Hill quote about Phoenix being an affront to the Almighty just kind of rattling around my head now. But this is. They tried a really big fan. (laughs) (laughs) They did, but unfortunately, the peg to stop it moving back and forth was busted, so it just kept overheating. no, it, to, to give you an idea of the scale of the problem, though, um, Microsoft increased their worldwide water consumption by a whopping 34%, up to 1.7 billion gallons annually uh, just last year. Um, and it's all due to AI training, according to like outside researchers who are pretty confident. Um, that in turn, though... Due to a statistical anomaly, Thirsty George <laughs> should not have been counted. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sadly, I just love, I just love that like um, AI is going to kill us all after all. Yeah, no. Like, James Cameron was right, but in the most pedestrian way ever. <laughs> I think. Well, what needs to happen is I'm going to, I'm going to get, I'm going to get the jump on on Bill Gates about this, and um, suggest Paul that <laughs> we we build more data centers and use human blood as the coolant. <laughs> And that yes. way we can just stu- we can we can we can harvest the blood by building a big people thresher and just stuffing, <laughs> stuffing as many people in there as possible because mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of you're getting out in front of the whole Q story and just making it real because like well your people already believe this they'll get into my thresher. <laughs> I just I love the idea of like the fucking machine from Soylent Green, except it's like Soylent Red, or whatever. In this version, is like rolling down the street, and all the manga chuds are just like, "Oh, we knew this would happen." Just like, yeah, fantastic. Love yeah, it. it's so not it, the it, worst it, idea. I mean, there's limited water, but you, blood comes back after a while, so just like replace <laughs> the water bit with orange juice, and that's, yeah. that's a circular economy right there. Sorted. The <laughs> succulent economy. <laughs> Look, David, just because your blood is based on iron food <laughs> doesn't mean it's the case for the rest of us. Not anymore, um, it's not. R. No, R. not since they've changed it, yeah. Um, but no, he, so to, to drag us vaguely back, um, this is the problem, though, is like Microsoft isn't even the worst. Uh, they're dwarfed by Google, which used, get this, 5.6 billion gallons of water last year compared to Microsoft's 1.7. How? Is, is there even that much? <laughs> yes, yeah, there yeah, is. Sadly. That's where all my fucking glaciers went. <laughs> <laughs> Give it back. <laughs> but don't worry, you don't have a worry, Rob, engine, you don't even need it. <laughs> uh, don't, don't worry, Rob, there is a very pertinent line in this that I think you'll enjoy. <clears throat> oh, good. And you'll recall, you'll recall that ChatGPT wasn't even publicly released until the end of November, with AI use spiking enormously this year. So those figures are likely only. The tip of the iceberg. Oh, good. So we're using incredible amounts of water so the worst people in the world can send each other email that neither party reads. Great. Yep. Yes. That's that's exactly it. This could have not been an email. Yeah. Have you <laughs> have you considered staying home and playing video games instead? Mm. They also, I mean, even where they build it, where there is like more water available, like you know, 
they built them in Florida, and Florida, if anything, does not have a problem with being uh, in drought right now. Um, even in lush states like there, it's a problem because the water footprint of the data centers is so large. Because remember, these are quite concentrated places with a lot of water being drained to a very small place um, that they put tremendous pressure on, water, on local watersheds. Because once they pump it through and it gets warm, they need to like piss it back out again, basically, in order to like move it on. Um, they should which... just be forced to build them underwater. Contract yeah. out to fucking Ocean Gate. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so so there you go. You know, um, it, can it's... they not get those um, those libertarian raft fans to just put it like put data centers on the sea? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You cannot give libertarians data centers. <laughs> oh God! Hey, don't don't drag the principality of Sealand into this. <laughs> those guys, those guys are nice and sane compared to the uh, ones who want to build the like you know. Um, basically, like Jamie said, big rafts. Like they, they converted. What was it? What was it? Was it a liner? A cruise it was a cruise liner. liner. Yeah. yeah. And they wanted to turn it into like a floating mobile St. James. Yeah. yeah. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Didn't everyone catch dysentery or something on that? I think that was the they, Goon project in Hawaii. Yeah, that was the Goon project. This, the, 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 the crypto <laughs> cruise liner was never actually filled with people, except for the three guys oh. who were sailing it. And then the one guy left last <laughs> alone did his uh, like his his Christmas alone there and went down the slide all the times he worked. <laughs> and isn't that the freedom they sought? Um, but there is, you know, in case you're wondering, so it doesn't mean they're going to run out of water. It's already got it's already got problems before then because not only are they like destroying the local water table and all the rest of it, but would it surprise you to know? that they are giving the best water that's available to the AI centers and giving regular people stuff that some people are saying isn't fit for human consumption. Because um, we've got, you know, people on Reddit in, in the actual area this is affecting have been complaining that the taste of local water has been deteriorating. And now would, I, would I be surprised to learn that tap water shit? I live in Britain. <laughs> <laughs> tap water heals good. Sorry, I'm contractually obligated to fucking say that. <laughs> But yeah, so um, the other problem, by the way, is that not only does it like wash out the local area, the final thing and the thing that, you know, is just like really does mean we're going to be headed towards Doofwagon territory is obviously the water that's pumped out is incredibly hot, right? And it spreads over a large area. And then because it's hot, it evaporates, leaving basically thick, briny wastewater that salts the earth unless it's treated. So, um... Yeah, it's, it's not just that it's using up all the water. It's not just that people are, you know, getting really crap metallic tasting water, you know, as the leftover dregs. It's not just that it's flushing out the local water tables. Um, it's also that the land that it's flushing out on is increasingly becoming basically toxified and unable to support any life whatsoever. Okay, Maybe Mark according to the thing water should be telling is about standard grade geography and you can just get something to tell us about the water cycle rather than uh, the standard biology shit about the I was going to ask about the water cycle because if there is a lot of evaporation that, and it goes back up can I have the rest of the water back back then to you know backfill my glaciers because they're quite important no. to me not just you know, for skiing I, but I also have, for skiing. I have a better idea um, if we take all the people pulp, pulp from the people thresher we can make Ooh. people icebergs <laughs> no if we, if we take if we take 
I'll do you one better. If we take the people pop and we put them in like the salty brine, then we can like make people jerky and then we can feed. <laughs> Oh, I'm just sorry. I'm just now picturing Rob climbing a glacier made of people like Kratos and God of War 2. Just like, you know, hand on a ribcage, you know, as he goes. Like, yeah, no, fantastic. They should just, that, that like, that salty brine that they get out, they should just pump that directly into a hot dog factory. <laughs> <laughs> the circular pickle, we call him here, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. But yeah, so so that's your that's just your little news nuggets for tonight. Just an introduction that, quite aside from all the uh, frivolous uses of computing technology we're about to talk about, the dead serious, like you know, very important uses of computer technology are in the process of killing us all. So hooray! Yeah, but you playing your video games at home is are also contributing, quite frankly. Well, maybe we'll talk about that when we get onto data centers later. So um, I guess uh, I guess we have nothing else. We'll we'll talk about the main topic now. Um, so regular listeners may remember that back on episode 220, we talked about the strikes in the creative industry over in the United States, and specifically, we covered the strikes called by the Writers Guild of America and the Screen Actors Guild American Federation Television Radio Artists, both of whom called a, a strike against the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. And in that episode, we went into some pretty great detail about what a union is, ways in which they work, and the benefits they bring to their members. So if this is all new to you, we strongly recommend you go listen to episode 220 because we're going to be talking about unions later on tonight. Yeah, do your homework. And that means, I mean, Christ's sake. <laughs> and, uh, and this means that, yeah, Jamie, we're not going to be defining what a union is and what a strike is this episode. You don't have to worry about it. What's a video game? Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> um, so the reason I raise this in particular is there's been development since then. Um, there's been two. So the first one is that the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, fucking won their dispute and got almost everything they asked for, including strong protections against the use of AI. And yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah no, um, I've seen it described by industry commentators, direct quotes, as a complete blowout and the AMPTP getting their ass handed to them. Um, so not only do you love to see it, it's clear proof that there's power in a union. Um, yeah. So that's great. In contrast, SAG-AFTRA's dispute with them is still ongoing, but that leads us to our second and very relevant development. SAG-AFTRA's membership recently voted to authorize a strike against 10 major gaming industry publishers, with 98.32% of the union's 160,000 members voting in favor of the strike. So, yeah, um, their beef, specifically their beef, is with Activision Productions, Blind Light, Good. Dis Disney Character Voices, Electronic Arts, yeah. Epic yeah. Games, Formosa Interactive, Insomniac Games, Take-Two Productions, Voice Work Productions, and Warner Brothers Games. So, nice. that's All like... the stars are here. Yeah, they, they, yeah, everyone is here. To be clear, at the time of recording... As far as I'm aware, when I last checked a minute ago, the strike hasn't yet been called, but it's looking like it's unavoidable. Last Thursday, SAG-AFTRA announced that its scheduled talks with various gaming industry employers ended very quickly and without an agreement being formed. They basically told them to get to it. So, this seems to us a great time to dig into the many ways in which a game industry sucks and investigate the causes. Uh, spoilers, it's capitalism. It's always capitalism. So, yeah. 
Despite right, episode done. Despite what gamers, yeah. Despite gamers' repeated efforts to pretend it's China, it is actually capitalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, how is it China's so, uh, fault? Just for for those amongst you who uh, are not gamers. Ten cent. Right, so like ten cent, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tencent put a lot of money like all over, and like obviously, like they're a mega corporation, so I'm sure they're pricks as well. But like, they put money everywhere in the games industry, and there's a there's a, a very like wide streak of gamers who will just instantly refuse to spend any money if they think China has been involved at any level of the creative process. Oh, okay. So a healthy bunch there's of like, mm-hmm. yeah, like like the Epic Store is, do you know what I mean? Like, shit, and Epic are terrible, and Tim Sweeney's a prick. But, like, you know, you can Coming just not swinging. like them because of that. You don't have to, like, pretend it's because, like, you know, that Tim Sweeney's only a prick because China gave him money because he would, I guarantee you, do that shit for free. Gamer <laughs> wall. <laughs> There's a lot of really legitimate reasons to be wary of anything Tencent touches because, you know, they made they made a lot of money in the mobile game sector. And I think what mm-hmm. a lot of what we're seeing over the past past decade maybe with the aggressive monetization that we're seeing in video games you know Tencent's at the forefront of that they 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 push a lot of um, how shall I say more typically mobile free to play economy type types of monetization into games that are you know not have not traditionally yeah it's predatory they, they, yeah. they, they deploy predatory models of <laughs> um of income generation that's that's how they do it like here's a free to play game but also here's a shit ton of money that you can also spend on the free to play game to make it somehow mm. better for you mm. so one example i, c- I can make is um tencent acquired a quite a big stake in fat shark which were the oh, yeah. people behind very very excellent games the the vermintide games yep and oh yeah they um you know since since tencent gained such a such a stake in them have their monetization now for their for their latest game was uh dark tide and that had a lot of criticize criticism for for launching in a very unfinished state very oh, yeah. buggy but having a a fully working uh, microtransaction economy. That pissed me off yeah. no end. I, I got that and I was ready for it because I was looking for a, group t- a game to play with my group of friends, including my fiance, and um, I booted it up and my cursor was in the middle of a screen and just wouldn't go away no matter what I did. Um, you know, I'm in game. Check to see if they were selling something in the store that would hide it. <laughs> <laughs> Patch for game, $10, sure. Oh God, that might be where it's headed. No, these are the things, so these are all, all of these problems are fundamentally driven by capitalism, as we will show. And in yeah. the back half of this episode, we're going to talk about specific things like Tencent's monetization approaches. And not just Tencent, but the, like, across the entire industry. But to get there, one yeah, thing... To be, to be clear, I'm not saying people shouldn't have a problem with Tencent. I'm just decrying the specific subset of gamers for who, like, say, like, uh, Valve can do no wrong, for example. Yeah. But like epic or you know any or anyone touched by 10 cent are evil because of the communists yeah. you know what i mean as if what 10 cent are doing is communism chairman mao loved video games yeah <laughs> he loved he loved microtransactions 
Interesting. So <laughs> one of the things I'd like to do with this is the first part of this episode, I'd like to for us to take the time to kind of lay down the foundation of how we got here and like why all of this comes from capitalism. Because it's one thing to say it, right? But it's another thing to kind of show exactly how it's arisen from material conditions. So to, to start with, we really do need to ask a question that Casey asked earlier. I'm going to direct it to my favorite person to ask these questions to. Jamie, what is a video game? A miserable pile of secrets. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a board game, but the hardware is a lot more expensive. <laughs> sure. In all seriousness, no. In all seriousness, though, I think we need to ask a question from a labor perspective, from a perspective of workers who actually produce them. What is a video game? Because this, is, this kind of gets to the core of it. So... Well, I put it to you that a video game, from a, a worker's perspective, is it's an actively managed project. It's a product of collaborative labor, art and science united to realize a creative vision. It's a logistical nightmare that scales with the scope of a video game. And it's the intersection of the craft of artistic processes and the industry of mass production. And all of that's before you even get into stuff like distribution, localization, marketing, all the rest of it. Just a production of a game is this massive collaborative labor effort. And for professional developers, more than this, it's a livelihood. The work is what lets them feed and clothe themselves. And so workers have a very strong incentive to release a product that is good, that will sell well, that will maintain community investment in order to keep, uh, to keep them working, to keep them employed so that they will have sales in future. Putting out a bad game is not in the interest of workers at all. Now, to contrast that, and the reason I've asked this kind of facile question, I'm going to throw one wide to you, and I'm looking at Rob as I ask this as well, because I know this is of interest to you. What's a video... about Assassin's Creed? Well, <laughs> what is a video game from the perspective of an investor, and how does it differ? Well, it's it's it's, it's simply the, the end result of labor that it, that can be then monetized and sold to, you know... Stolen. Yeah. yeah, stolen and then sold to gamers, rubes, and other assorted people for, you know, a fixed amount of money and then hopefully with a bunch of Microsoft transactions following. Fuck you, Bobby Kotick. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's an asset. It is an asset which has an invested amount of money into it that reaches it's a maturity. It's an infinite commodity as well. Yeah. Uh, that, that reaches a maturity when it comes to market. Potentially it is, like you know, David says, an infinite commodity. Once it's made, it can be infinitely reproduced. And if it all goes well, it's also the, the starting point of a future investment. There's like a brand that's established that could be milked further down the line. At yeah. Nowhere in that description does it really line up with what workers need when it comes to producing games, you know? Um, Colin be surprised. Yeah, I know, right? Um, and so... Like, I put it to you that before we kind of set out on the history of this, the central contradiction of the heart of the video game industry is this. It's video games being seen essentially as an asset by the capitalist class versus being seen as a labor of love, a production, and ultimately a means of sustaining life um, by the actual workers who work on it. And, you know, the, the consumers were kind of ancillary to this in many ways. Um, our preferences, you know, as gamers and when we play games kind of feed into this, kind of drive this. But the main contradiction is just between the game as something that's produced for sustaining human life and human well-being and human flourishing versus the game as a bunch of numbers in a spreadsheet that will accrue over time. So, yeah, I would ask you not to throw aspersions and slurs around that is like gamer. Thank you very much. <laughs> one of the uh, one of my favorite things ever is when people try to like 
bring gamers onto the side of the investors by like you know what if you bought mario right and mario was the best at mario kart and then when you like won all the mario kart races you could sell mario and it'd be worth more Oh, this is they tried that. They tried that a while ago, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah they it was the, the NFT, sort of NFT. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just totally normal stuff, right? That leads to good yeah. gaming. That sounds fun. Um, and so, you know, herein we get to like the, the start of this, which is that the important point is that people who work on games have very different incentives to the people who own the games being worked on. Not the not the actual like players, not the people who like purchase a copy to play, but the people who actually own the intellectual property that is the game. And you know, spoilers: the workers' incentives better line up with the players' wants and desires than the investors do. And this kind of then leads us into the historical model of video game development and where it all started. So, um, to kind of, I'm going to run through this, and everyone like feel free to like toss in and you know disagree if I say anything you think is wildly out of out of scope, but. Here goes. So gaming, when it kicks off, it starts as an artisanal craft scene in the same way as most industries did. It's dominated by skilled individuals who produce high-quality, idiosyncratic work in response to overarching consumer demand. This doesn't last I mean, they also because... produce incredible amounts of dross that nobody ever wanted to play or see again. You know, like, yeah, let's, let's not make bro. everybody who, like, sat at home, you know, coding for the Atari <laughs> some kind of Van Gogh-level genius. There was just a lot of piss No, 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 no. <laughs> well, like, like I said, Rob, high-quality idiosyncratic. I think actually it first started in, like, university labs where it shouldn't have been happening, you know? Like, oh, it we've did. got this new computer here and NASA needed to, like, calculate, like, a moon fucking shot. <laughs> and someone else is, like, fucking sitting right in, like... Uh, space war or something on it. <laughs> it was a it was a dungeon crawler i believe was the very first one from what i understand um no i think it was space war was it okay i'll take yeah, I'll, I'll i think take they had that run i think they i think the original version of that ran on an oscilloscope oh that's so cool anyway <laughs> sorry so this this is the historical like state of it it's it's you know it's a craft right yeah. But as the games industry begins to formalize, we then witness the industrialization of this skill set via the need to find purchase in an emerging marketplace with limited methods of distribution. So let's kind of break that down. People want games. This becomes like a thing that is more widely spread. Word gets around. People are like, oh, you heard this game. People see money in it. We get game shops opening. And the, the process of actually distributing games for most people comes down to getting your game physically on a shelf and making it stand out against the growing volume of games available, you know, um, for purchase. Which, this largely gives rise to the publisher um, in a model that's largely identical to the book publishing industry, at least on the distribution side. So, Except you can't copy books on a fucking ghetto blaster. No, <laughs> no you, you can't, but... You wouldn't you know, download a book. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> contraire, my friend. Um <laughs> But this is, this is where publishers kind of get in because with like game shops with limited air, you know methods of distribution because we're not on the internet most of the of the world at this point um, the distribution of games requires that you be able to compete on a shelf and be able to no no know, no you could download it off the telly by recording it on yeah. the tape <laughs> that's true <laughs> that's so fucking amazing like of all the things and ways to play a video game that's fucking great I love that but still they should bring that back. Replace I mean, like the entirety of BBC News Twenty Four with a fucking eighty yeah. gigabyte download. You just want to see facts back, David. You just want to see facts back, don't you? <laughs> Teletext supremacy. Yeah, but so so the publisher may come in. Remember when, remember when uh, Teletext had Choose Your Own Adventures on? 
Did they? Months before my time. When the fuck was this? I'm pretty sure in like the early 90s, around hours at school, I'm sure. The... <laughs> 90s kids will remember this. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't read then, mate. That wasn't, that wasn't on the cards for me. No, sorry. Can you read now? For me. <laughs> so so here's, here's what publishers did, right? If you're another publisher, then the pr publisher had printing, the actual creation of the, the imprinting of the discs and the manuals and big cardboard boxes we used to come in. Um, the publisher had printing, distribution. Cloth yeah, cloth maps as well. They had printing, distribution, and often marketing pre-negotiated. <laughs> so right. no, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure literally nobody else here is old enough to remember this, but does anyone by any chance remember... <laughs> do tell 90s kid. When Psygnosis would do two releases of a game... One that, like, uh, there was one that came with a free T-shirt but cost an extra £10. <laughs> I do remember, like, you know, the, the, the good old days of where you got, like, a big fuck-off box and, like, having, like, the, fa the, the, the fancy box edition would have, like, a cloth map of the whatever area you were playing in. Yeah, like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> good times. Like, yeah. I miss big boxes with, like, big chunky art books and manuals and stuff. And yeah. That stuff was fucking great. Yeah, the Remember keyboard overlays for flight sims. Oh my god, I Ooh. do. Jesus, that's a core memory unlocked right there. <laughs> but you know, so welcome to Proustian Reverie as Praxis. <laughs> <laughs> when we finish this episode in nine hours, I'm sure everyone will be very happy. <laughs> me yeah, eating. So this is what me eating my flight sim overlay <laughs> keyboard. Ah, oh, this takes me back. <laughs> Uh, the smell of CD-ROMs, we'll never forget. Um, but yeah, so like, do you remember so this when is how... we used to have um, cassette tapes for for video games? And mm -hmm. yeah. what some pirates would do was um, broadcast them over pirate radio stations, and you could record something off off oh, the radio and um, play it on your Commodore sixty four. That's amazing. That is fantastic. <laughs> Ah, oh, we must return. Like we, yeah. we are becoming a conservative <laughs> yes. podcast, but only on one particular issue. Um, but yeah, so to, to drag us back, like this is what publishers gave you was pre-negotiation for printing, distribution, and often marketing. Whereas if you had to go it alone, then you not only did you have to make the game, but you had to find shops willing to stock it, organize its physical printing, arrange a marketing campaign, and also try and you know as part of marketing it, get it in front of the nascent games journalist and publications like. You know that was that was difficult. Doing all of that heavy lifting was a challenge, and so it made sense to have a division of labour with publishers. That's why but, we invented shareware. Mm, I mean, mm. it's one, that was one of the things that that you know managed to cut through. But even then, um, it still became like shareware only really worked because of reporting from like the nascent games journalism publications. Ironically, like the first the first episode of Doom that was released for free, everyone remembers how it like you know ground everything to a halt. But that's because it had been covered and reported on, and there was massive anticipation for it. So, you know, it's it's kind of it, even even when there were ways to slightly get around some of this, it still ultimately came down to relationships with publishers. Um, which led to, essentially, um, a massive power imbalance where publishers effectively controlled the flow of commerce for the games industry. Um, which wasn't, at the beginning, that wasn't so bad because while there were many publishers, there was competition between them. And the ability of a game studio to basically choose who they published with kept some of the power balance in check. But as happens under... Yeah, and also, they weren't, like, they weren't really involved in the fucking development. No, they couldn't be at that time. But... As it's, what I, it's what I love when like you used to get licensed games 
Mm-hmm. Like Ocean were the big one. They they did like every, every film that ever came out in the fucking like late eighties, early nineties got an Ocean platform game. Oh, I mm-hmm. remember that. Like there's a there's a Blues Brothers platform game. There is. I played it. I loved that. I loved that, I loved that Blues Brothers Le- game. Yeah, Lethal Weapon had a platform. Oh game. shit! So it did. <laughs> yeah. As- but like, what I loved about those was that you'd get like. Uh, like some film would come out and Ocean would do like a license thing and every single platform had a different version because it yeah. had gone to a different guy in a different bedroom somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's just superb. There was a, but... there was an Ocean Terminator 2 game and it felt like every level was a different game entirely. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but like there's one kind of like... I, I've just remembered they did, a, uh, they did a platform game based on Hudson Hawk. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really good, I seem to recall. I just remember I the, the, the top-down game of uh, True Lies, which was incredibly hard and wildly frustrating, and it still makes me angry now that I think about it again. <laughs> well, you're just off-topic, I actually think I do remember that Terminator game. It was Terminator 2, and I think it eventually got a port to the Mega Drive, if I recall correctly, or the Master System, one of the two. And I remember my friend playing it and being like wildly frustrated by it. So mm. yeah, no, it definitely checks out. I played um, it on the Amiga back in the day. Yeah, I think it. Oh, I, I love the Amiga. I think it got a port to the Sega Master System because my friend had a Master System. I never did. I, I my first. There console. was a, there was a Mega Drive Terminator game where you played as Michael Bean. I'm taking word for that, Jamie. I don't remember. <laughs> it was like a, it was like a side scrolling shooter thing where you had the trench coat and the, and the shotgun with Larry Sauls the handle off and that. I only, like, I only played I only played like an hour of it at my mate's house once, but it mm. was really cool. It sounds very on brand for the time. But anyway, to, to, to bring us back, so unfortunately this couldn't last because capitalism consolidates. So some publishers do better, they buy out publishers which are failing, and gradually the industry consolidates, which means that as they kind of shrink under this consolidation of capital, publishers increasingly, there's a smaller number of them, and they basically get to say it's our way or the highway to the game studios. Um, and this, in turn, increasingly allows publishers to set the terms by which game development studios will work, even going so far as to outright purchase game development studios and start setting their budgets and their working conditions. So to kind of to, to kind of put this in focus, you got to remember, at, at heart, game development is a craft pursuit. It's artistic. It depends on high levels of individual skill joining together in collaboration. But capitalism, and specifically the investment model of capitalism, hates crafts because they're prone to human whims and depend heavily on individual human beings who can leverage their necessity to avoid being ruthlessly exploited from an investor's yeah. pers- from an investor's perspective investment investment is neither skilled nor lib yes basically from an investor's perspective games production and development should be measurable regimented and brought to a factory-like production line where individual cogs are replaceable and this gives rise to a focus in the games industry on process rather than individual contribution and collaboration. The same pressure that led to the spread of development approaches elsewhere, like agile software development. Like that's why that exists. It's to create a measurable, quantifiable, exchangeable, regimented approach to something which fundamentally is a creative pursuit at heart. Even right. the, even the development of algorithms is basically kind of like that. I've got no experience of agile development, but I always assumed it was something to do with avoiding boulders. It's very Indiana dumb. Jones. If you watch the first Indiana Jones movie, that's basically the intro is basically agile software development. Yeah, that little statue he steals has, has like a jet set willy embedded in it. 
<laughs> so, so to emphasize this, part of this process requires that workers be interchangeable, right? Instead of, like, your John Carmacks of the world going into a room for several weeks and emerging with a new video game engine, the industry requires clearly rankable workers who are churned out at scale and who can be slotted into team collaboration. And this applies yeah. just about... Just it's it's also unlike uh, John, uh, John Romero, who went into a room and told me he was going to make me his bitch by playing Daikatana. Oh. <laughs> God, I remember those adverts. Yeah, yeah. me too. <laughs> Wild time. <laughs> But the thing, to, to be clear, this this applies to the artistic side just as much um, as it does, you know, all, all the technical side. It's not just the programmers. The art, you know, concept art team, um, the actual in-game art, artistry teams, the music production, all the rest of it, it all ends up conforming to the same kind of regimentation. And this is what ultimately will start to give rise to sponsorship for video game design and development courses at educational institutions. The industry needs this steady churn of workers who can be slotted in and slotted out, who they can rank, and ultimately who they can, if you'll excuse my language, fuck over tremendously. So, I won't. I won't excuse no. your language. No. Oh, well, okay. Uh, this I'm kind of language. To go <laughs> So the end, the end result of this is we've got a series of increasingly consolidated publishers who have game development studios firmly in hand, ultimately controlling the financing games and increasingly behaving less as distributors and more as investors. You throw in some early kind of walled gardens in the form of video game consoles, where basically the, the manufacturers of the consoles are kind of mega publishers in a roundabout way, and you have an industry that's prone to serious abuse of workers, and eventually, in a specific way we'll get to, abuse of customers. But here's the thing. Who's that climbing up the top rope? By God, it's the internet, which kind of produces a bit of a wrinkle to all of this. So as this consolidation is happening, the internet comes along and it makes physical distribution far less necessary. Um, and that means a major component of what publishers provide becomes far less necessary. And it's our way or the highway starts to lose its bite a little bit. For a brief moment, this pushes back against publisher consolidation as new development teams explore ways of distributing their product that don't require being lashed to the mast of a traditional publisher. Now, I know some people are thinking, but hang on, but the internet's been around forever. What I'm specifically talking about is the mass uptake of the internet that happened in the 90s when individual consumers, rather than just like universities or specialists, started to have like connections in their own home. That was a major game-changing moment. And well, it, I mean, you also, slowed. apart from that, you needed the, the house internet to be strong enough to actually download some data, you know, yes. unlike, you know, watching one image appear line by line over like 70 minutes. And then, you know, you discovered it was pasted together and not really worth the, the bothering it with anyway. 90s kids yeah, will we also remember that. Yep, yep. We I think we can all agree it was a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> what, the internet? Or, or, yeah. <laughs> or, or, the, or the image? Both. <laughs> uh, David converting to fundamentalist Islam, but only for like video game images. Love it. Um, but yeah, so what's a publisher to do in this situation? Um, what we could do is offer improved services and a better deal. And to be fair, for a while, some of them. No, did. I think um, I think the obvious choice is to um, refuse to send like shops console games unless they also sell PC games. Well, that is part of what, part of their tactic. But um, so you know, there is the option of doing like improved services, etc., and engaging competition. But what most of the more successful ones did was they decided to kind of double down on the area where they still hold significant like sway and influence, which is the games journalism industry. 
Um, and it's in this way we witness the increasing capture of major games journalism outfits and platforms, less for purposes of dictating scores and ratings, and more for determining who gets organic advertising spotlight. In this period, this is what becomes the main focus. It's like, well, you could distribute your stuff online, but let's be real, your, your downloads are going to be determined by who's anticipating it, by who's been shown what you're working on. And, you know, we have all the contacts with, you know, your proto IGN, your PC gamer, all the rest of it. So if you want to have the eyeballs to make the downloads worthwhile, you have to deal with us anyway. Is this um, about ethics in video game journalism? I mean, ironically, everything is about ethics in video games journalism. <laughs> I live my I, life according, you know, according to the way of the sword and the way of ethics in video games journalism. <laughs> I mean, ironically, like it's not. It's obviously it's not about that ethics in video games journalism. But yeah. It is about it is about the institutional kind of pressures that come in the symbiotic relationship between publishers and major video games outlets. And I'm gonna, you'll like this, Casey. Um, for more on this, I'm going to plug the journalistic career and work of James Stephanie Sterling from the James Inquisition. Um, their professional trajectory and their commentary on all this is a very excellent highlighter for how this process has played out. So if you want to learn more about just how things became fucked over time, um, go check them out, please. Um, yeah. They're incredibly entertaining as well. They are. Yeah. They are. Absolutely yeah, fantastic. Good. So... The center cannot hold on this, and someone is eventually going to figure out how to do an end run around the publishers using the internet. And so, cometh the hour, cometh the capitalist, introducing Gabe Newell. <laughs> so, Valve Software, they have a breakout hit with a game called Half-Life, which they publish under traditional publisher Sierra Games. But Gabe Newell, founder of Valve and the source of much of their startup capital, recognizes an opportunity to do the funniest thing possible to the games industry. Um, Valve takes the profits from Half-Life and immediately reinvests them into developing a sequel and also an online distribution platform that will, when it's fully fledged, go around the entire publishing and journalism industries, allowing Valve to both release its own products direct to consumer and, if all goes well, own the digital marketplace for games distribution, creaming 30% of sales price directly off the top. I'd invite listeners is the, to is go... Is the reason that we don't have Half-Life 3 because he hasn't made Steam 2 yet? <laughs> the reason we don't have Half-Life 3 is because he's too busy sitting on like a dragon's hoard worth of loot and we haven't killed him yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so I'd invite listeners to go look at their unplayed Steam library to understand yeah. how wildly successful it's been. <laughs> like, um, it's been so successful that the major publishers have been forced to deal directly with Valve to get purchases on their platform. Though God bless them, they keep trying to build their own alternatives. Um, Valve, as a concept, it's, it's the Netflix. It's the Netflix problem, isn't it? Like when when Steam first started, everyone thought it was shit, and everyone thought it would fail. And to be fair, when Steam first started, it like it was fucking dreadful. You know, like mm -hmm. I, I, I remember having to like us. oh I I didn't I oh, didn't yes, properly adopt Steam until years later, and I. I think I lost my yeah. original account when I when I first bought Half Life Two, and I was like, "Why can't mm. I just install this game and yep. play it normally yeah. like I'm used to?" And like, it, we had to. We had really the the main thing for Steam with me was we had to wait for technology to catch up with it because mm. the the initial the performance was dreadful on the initial like versions, and trying to run that and a game at the same time was like <laughs> it, it would just murder the game. You you. You'd spent like seven days downloading or whatever, you know. It was... Well, it's an example of minimum viable product, which we will be talking about yeah. later. 
but, but like, like once once it got established and it was clear that it was a success and it wasn't going anywhere suddenly everyone's got to have their own version mm-hmm. and it's like that's not how innovation that's, works really that's like, the, that was the worst thing as well everybody having their own version but um like do you does anybody remember when uh discord tried to have their own games store oh yes that was fun yeah for the uh what was it six months for it lasted yeah like something like that <laughs> the best just... one was ea because they took all their games home with them didn't they yeah they took their ball and went home and said no you can come play in our garden and not at all why is nobody coming to our garden why are they staying yeah. in the garden that's got a pool i don't understand so, look, who come, uh, look who's come crawling back. Yeah, very literally. <laughs> apparently, apparently, so the, I don't know this for sure because it's all under like NDA, etc. But the rumor is that Valve absolutely gouged them just for spite when they came back, um, which, uh, you know, well, it's kind of funny. That's kind of that's funny. two groups of people I heartily wish each other on to. <laughs> but, so this kind of leads to Valve tr- transitioned from being a game developer to being a mega publisher and walled garden for the PC games market with game development very much a vestigial part of what they do and that's why there's no Half-Life 3 because yeah. that's not their business anymore I, I do th- I do think there are other issues with, with a Half-Life 3 I believe there was uh, lead writers on the series have left the company since so yeah. there are more reasons than just Gabe Newell's busy. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. the, you well know. The, the, the writer... Well, based off how long we had to wait for Alex, they're, they're waiting for the holodeck to be invented before we finally <laughs> get Half-Life 3. They could just replace those writers with an AI, surely. <laughs> oh, dear. So, but yeah, if you want, if you want a, a good example of like why investment capital sucks, if you look at like Valve and Steam and how they've made more money than God with that, and they control like a significant portion of the games industry and they're just super influential and powerful and yet they still go out of their way to spend as little as possible on the service they're providing yeah yeah so the the key difference between valve and like a traditional publisher is that valve are so huge and they effectively own the pc video games market they don't need to take an individual stake in development for anything other than shits and giggles if they want to. Like, they didn't have to put out half like Alex. They, they did it because they wanted to. Instead... Well, they did that to try and sell their VR. Headset. Yeah, but that, that that's more, you know, that's a little bit of, of business development, but mostly it's like that's something that Gabe Newell wanted to happen. You know, that's the, the God King decided and thus so it was. And he did it a little yeah. bit more uh, sensibly well, than Zuckerberg The whole thing... The whole thing these days is trying to like either create new markets that aren't really there or like push their way into them. Like the Steam Deck's a good example of trying to push mm-hmm. their way into the handheld stuff. Steam Deck's in a way fantastic. That's, like, quite cl- it is very good. It's I really am- like it. It is amazing. Um, but like, it's great that PC gaming on the go. You can't do that with Switch. That's fucking magic. Um, like, VR's not get very good uptake because the requirements of it are still ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But they created a new incentive for people to get, actually pull the pull the plug and do it, like and get the VR headset. I so, mean, the other that, reason that's the whole thing. VR isn't very good. Is I tried it the once and I got fucking motion sickness at the wazoo and spent an hour vomiting, which is really good. Like that's I, just that's just personal weakness, Rob. Sorry, but <laughs> yeah, skill issue. I'm afraid. Yeah. yeah, what you need, what you need is a a more sedate game where your character is seated. So have you tried Elite Dangerous? <laughs> <laughs> Oh. I refuse to believe that you don't have ginger in like every single food item that you eat anyway. So like you should be fine. <laughs> the shade. 
<laughs> but yeah, so essentially Val's model is that outside of instances like this where for their own reasons they decide to get involved, they don't actually necessarily go around buying up game companies that much. They've done it tactically when they were growing, like they bought the developers a portal, but they don't need to do it these days. Instead, they followed a very simple process. At the beginning, they had their own games on the platform. Then when they had it viable enough, they opened it to allow quality games that they curated onto the platform. And then finally they threw open the floodgates and they let pretty much anything on there these days. Yeah. And literally any old shit. Yeah. And you know, they created Remember Steam Greenlight? Yes. Yes. The first few weeks of Steam Greenlight before they had to put a they had to put a sign up saying you have to actually be <laughs> developing a game that you own. Like, yeah, because people were just putting up the oh I should like someone should someone should make a game based on like this book and then like everyone would like fucking do you know what I mean vote it through and then no one would actually own the rights to the book or know how to code. Well, it's it definitely it's another example of minimum viable product. Is this is this like coincid is this like coinciding with the uh, with the golden age of Kickstarter where everybody would just promise like seamless open world gaming better than World War World War Two or World of Warcraft or whichever you comes can, first. You can say Star Citizen. We all know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, actually, I think he's talking about MMOs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just talking about the the age of Kickstarter where everybody could just pretend they were making a game and then just run off giggling with the body. MMOs actually were like uh, are the just. Like they draw more fire than Godzilla in terms of like <laughs> bad game development. We'll be talking right. We're actually going to talk about MMOs and live services don't, don't, later. Don't, so just to interject, do not forget the one hundred percent science based dragon MMO. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Oh, sorry, wait, wait, wait. Can we can we park the car for a moment and just can we discuss oh, no. that for a second? Because I don't know what that is. That sounds incredible. It it became a bit of a meme, but some somebody wanted to create a one hundred percent science based dragon MMO, and had some uh, but, ridiculous but, idea for us. And... But I have some questions. <laughs> there are. <laughs> well, they, they had some answers, which is they said, "Well, if dragons did exist, what would the physics be on their wings, and how would they produce fire? And, and like, you know, what would be like my, my thing was about flight, which was about what would be the air resistance of a dragon in flight? Yeah, it was oh, so nuts. so it's it's Microsoft Dragon Simulator again. And this uh, I'd get, get another key, keyboard overlay to eat. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it actually yeah, went anywhere, did it, Casey? I don't think so, but. I want I want to interject with something. I want to be fair to Kickstarter and to uh, the crowd, the whole crowdfunding of games. The vast majority, you know, the, the, there is this there is this little sort of idea of people running away with the money. The vast majority of Kickstarter games are quite successful, and oh, yeah. there's this little cognitive bias that I like to kind of just just pull the threads on um a lot of the games that are you know successful kickstarted games just become games people mm. forget about yeah. the crowdfunded nature like your your hollow knight your shovel knight mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. your various knights and <laughs> other adjacent knights um and what pe people only remember kind of um the, the 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 large failures 
<laughs> the ones that are controversial. Yeah. The one the ones that are controversial tend to just end up remembered as Kickstarter games, where the successful ones are just thought of as games. And yeah. there's been a lot of like I, I have backed quite a number of Kickstarter crowdfundings and you know, for the most part I think maybe one or two didn't did not meet their goal, didn't pan out, and um, that's unfortunate. But the vast majority, risk, like for let's say, blasphemous, or mm, yeah, good call. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's lot there's lots of great little games that are were very successful and ended up as great games. I mean. As a podcast that's brought to you by crowdfunding, go to patreon.com forward slash praxiscast. We're not going to throw stones too hard at it. Um, I think it's more like it did coincide, like Val clearly took inspiration from the Kickstarter swell as going right now is the time to do green light, I think is where we're kind of coming to. Um, it's extremely bold of you to come to the defense of fucking crowdfunding by citing this podcast. <laughs> hey, those who dare win, baby. Exactly. Yeah, we would never dare antagonize our group of delightful rubes. I mean, it's, you know, they're my favorite people. Feel the love, listener. Anyway, um, to, to drag us back for the, in the interest of trying to get through this, I swear to God. Um, so after they, after they let any old shit on, basically their profits come from 30% off the top and also from negotiated game promotion on the Steam store. And this is something people don't like to think about, but the Steam store is effectively the homepage for PC gaming these days. Like, every PC gamer probably sees the Steam, like, launch page um, with the new deals, etc., whenever they log on. And that's part of their plan of how they got around the publishing industry a bit with their Steam curation and, you know, community creators and, like, just the store's recommendation, etc. The trick is to never log off. Mm, well... <laughs> How much money do you reckon they've made? You know, because eventually they replaced Greenlight with if you give us a hundred dollars, you can just put a game on. You can put games on Steam. How much money do you think they've made from like people who were absolutely definitely going to make like the next World of Warcraft in their bedroom, and paid Valve the hundred dollars up front and then never actually finished the game? It's a good question. Probably not as much as they've made from negotiated deals, like highlight things on their front page. For like, I probably not, but. My understanding. I bet, they, I bet they made a mint from Crypto Bros. <laughs> oh god, oh, yeah, hope they so. probably did. Actually, wait, yeah. no, didn't they ban? Didn't they ban NFT? Yeah, stuff they from they Steam? banned NFT games and any, anything like that. Yeah, they didn't. Like my understanding is that was legally driven. They didn't want to be liable for like scams, basically yeah. going up yeah. on the Steam store. So. Look, one of these days, my Axie Infinity boat is going to come in, and I'll have no more of this negativity <laughs> on this fucking podcast. <laughs> so. When, when I, own, there, I have really like at- an entire slave farm in the Philippines now. I will get there one day. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which boat have you got? Is it the Mario boat? Because I hear that's the best one at boat racing. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the game noodle boat. Okay, so the well, I swear we're almost up to present day. So the other major innovation that's happening as all of this is going um, is the mobile phone revolution where the phone in your pocket can now seriously play games, not just like Snake, but it can play like modern, developed 3D games. Um, yeah, if you're yeah, casual. I prefer, prefer Snake, to be fair. Yeah, I do too, but you know, that's beside the point. You know what I prefer? Um, you can play Tetris on the phone, and that's all you need to play. <laughs> what, it's, what a little, it's a little after 
after Snake, but before the hellscape of current mobile gaming. Does uh-huh. anybody here remember the Doom RPG? I heard that was really good. That was fantastic. It was on the Razor, wasn't it? It was... God, I can't remember what that was on. But um, they, they did that. And they, did a, they did a Wolfenstein RPG as well. And they were... They're fantastic little games and you would, you'd, they'd work like traditional games. You, you buy the game and there's no, yeah. there's no extra, no extra bullpucky on the side. And what a novel concept. I know. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I was amazed at the time because I bought it with, um, with my phone credit and I was like, oh, wow. I, the future is now. Yeah. This, this was, <laughs> so for, for a brief moment in time, mobile gaming was really was a phenomenal idea yeah and i could play doom it still RPG can be good, on like, the toilet you can, <laughs> you can play good games like uh, star wars knights of the old republic or you can play bad games like star wars knights of the old republic on your phone these days <laughs> so yeah. strangely if it was or you could say play yet. assassin's creed rebellion and and just cry a lot oh, why would you <laughs> No, no, only you could do that, Rob. Um, so, so I've never done that. I, I don't. I, I, I'm an old man. I just do Wordle, and then I'm bad at it, and then you know I have to. <laughs> okay, so this this revolution takes place. Um, this introduces new walled gardens, the biggest of which is Apple, who zealously guard publication on the Apple Store. Um, yeah, however, they put an to, angel to kinda... with a flaming sword outside it. Yeah, and and Fortnite picks a fight with them. Anyway, um, to to kind of put this in in perspective, though, the mass of capital for the games industry is still concentrated at this point in historical publishers, and their decisions on development largely dictate how games end up developing for the phone platforms at the start, with a few new publishers managing to squeeze in by getting the jump on the new technology and carving out their space, many of whom will ultimately end up merging with major publishers further down the line. So when you say the um, when you say the new technology, there are you talking about the N gauge? <laughs> Very good. Uh, R.I.P. Do you remember how? Do you remember how that worked as a phone? No, I don't. You were, you were expected to hold it to your head, but like yeah, like, sideways, like you were holding a taco yes. to your head. Yeah, like it, it worked as a it worked as a phone in landscape mode. Yeah. Oh man. Okay, so this this then kind of leads us to the modern state of video game development. I swear we're nearly done here. So let's recap. We've got a few mega publishers consolidating their ownership of the video game production studios in a reciprocal relationship with a games journalism industry where both kind of need each other to maintain their hold over marketing and to strangle competition. We have a few walled garden publishers, namely Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo, Valve, and proprietary mobile phone co- uh, creators with their own app stores like Apple. The markets are all largely formed at this point, the acquisitions proceeding apace, and for the most part, the ownership is largely stable, if not entirely settled. So let's now move on. If you're a capitalist and there are no more lands left to conquer, so to speak, that means there's no more massive growth on which you and your investors can depend. But space. You go, growth. you send your games out into space. Well, that what are you to do is go to space, maybe. I want to talk about something a concept called the Inshittification of the Internet, which was developed by Corey Doctorow, uh, a tech critic. He described the life cycle of online tech companies in a way that everyone can kind of see when you look at, you know, your Netflix, your Facebooks, etc. First, they are good to their users. 
Then, they abuse their users to make things better for their business customers. Finally, they abuse those business customers to claw back all the value for themselves. I put it to you that the driving force behind this behavior is the same as in the game industry's publishers. And let me kind of lay it out. So first, there's massive growth in revenues due to new purchases and subscriptions by players and new acquisitions of developers. During this time, publishers want developers to make good things for the player, to acquire new market share, and then when developers have achieved this, they seek to consolidate those developers into the publisher's house and optimize them so that all profits flow to the publisher. And that's like the early stage of acquisition. But then when the player base is maxed out, when they have maximum market share in whatever markets they're competing in, the publishers need revenues to continue to increase. So they increasingly pressure developers to find new ways to extract profits from players. And we'll talk about some of those approaches in just a moment. Finally, when the profit extraction reaches its apogee um, and players begin to drift away from the games on offer, publishers crunch yeah, down they, hard they, on the studio. They stop playing Commander Keen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was hoping someone would make that joke when I wrote that sentence, to be honest. Um, but publishers crunch down hard on the studios to wring any remaining value from the husk of a previously well-respected studio. This is a complex topic, and it includes developments like shifting to mobile gaming monetization and games by subscription, which encompasses stuff like streaming games, Game Pass, and online subscription models. It also just involves things going from dire to apocalyptic in the actual, you know, uh, owned companies themselves. And, like, this is this kind of where we're at today. I put it to you, like, not all publishers follow this logic as ruthlessly and to the same degree. Some publishers are more circumspect, not good, just circumspect in how they approach this, recognizing there's a utility to be had in keeping core brand gaming properties in the good graces of the players. These tend to be publishers which are also owners of walled gardens, as their financial pressures to squeeze are not so tight. They can rely on other publishers using their walled garden, who are paying them a fee, to effectively do this at a remove and collect the fees they charge for access to the walled garden. So they don't have to squeeze their development studio. Nintendo doesn't have to squeeze their development studio so hard. Instead, they charge publishers for access to their walled garden, and the publishers who join that walled garden do the squeezing to their studios, and Nintendo effectively gets the same effect but I remove it's not quite as immediate for them um and the same it's not just nintendo it's anyone who's got a walled garden can kind of follow this which is why there's such a distinction between first party software development by your nintendos and sony's and like the additional games which are brought into the platform by like your activision blizzards etc i think Never the publishers are silent hell are quite circumspect <laughs> 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 nevertheless the logic underneath it all, the logic underneath it all is line must go up and this combined with the incentives we discussed earlier for games as investment lead to where we are today. And so that, I, I put it to you guys, but that's the material conditions that give rise to why gaming is the way it is today. Um, and that then leads to all the things that are fucked up in the games industry. Before we start talking about the individual fucked up things, because there's a lot, is there, have I missed anything? Is there any other element of this that we want to cover? Well, I mean, in general, it's it's just the the the, the same process of capitalist accumulation and then like accretion mm -hmm. into oligarchies that you see in all the other places because it's not in capitalism's yeah. interest to be like innovative and new and starting new things it's to build you know exclusive ecosystems and then extract rents because essentially a yep. lot of modern video gaming now is about extracting rents and not about actually doing creative anything it's just making you know having having a um uh, you know, a Skinner box with a rent extractor built on top. That's, you know... Oh, yeah. yes. And before before we leave, if we, we cover on the history of, like, the games industry, 
No one ever mentions it, but my Nana was quite good at Tetris. <laughs> Solid. <laughs> I mean, Tetris. Shout out to your to your Nana. Tetris. I mean, I mentioned this, and I, you know, I asked people in Blue Sky, "Hey, we're going to cover this topic tomorrow. Is there anything people are particularly keen to see covered?" And someone did mention Tetris and how Tetris, essentially, the developer of Tetris never got any money after it got stolen and sold in the West. But it's kind of niche. It's not really relevant, I don't think, to where we are today. But it's just worth noticing that you know companies still be doing what they always have been doing and screwing over developers. So, okay, if we're happy with that, then. I guess here we go, the fun part. What's fucked up in the games industry? That's a load-bearing fun. Um, so I, I, I've got... Like well, a what's really fucked all... up is I will be buying the next Assassin's Creed game, even though I know it'll be fucking terrible. That's the most yeah. fucked up thing. Well, we might we might get to that. I, I figured we, we'd talk about this in, in different areas. We'd start with labor, then we talk about monetization, and maybe do a little bit on journalism, and then we'll wrap up. So to kind of lead us in... Um, would you like to hear a little bit about worker compensation in the games industry? Um, no, I'm would depressed that... enough. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I assume it's really good. Yeah, no, it's excellent. So um, this comes from um, Uni Global Union, um, who did a, a survey of video game workers across 29 countries. Um, they, dis- dis- uh, they discerned that 66% of them report low pay, 43% of them report excessive work hours, Um, 43% of them also report inadequate benefits and 35% of them uh, report workplace discrimination and or sexual harassment among many other issues. Um, Ah, So so in other words, a workplace? Well, a a particular kind of hell of a workplace, as it turns out. Um, One which is still very much more of a boys club than you would expect. Uh, For example, in, in like the UK... Um, there's still a gender pay gap in the games industry, and it's very wide at 17.1%, which is higher than average for most industries in the UK, apparently. So, you know. Um, And on top of this, on top of this, like, really shit pay, you then, you know, have the problem of, you know, capitalists essentially wanting to keep wages low, just in general. No Um, way. No way. Are you saying that there's something called the exploitation of labor going on? Well, I'm shocked then, then, to establish to find out that there's a skitter box in this establishment. Yeah, there, there, there <laughs> might be. So, as publishers have merged and a fewer in existence, it's kind of become easier and easier to keep wages down because there's like you know fewer places to kind of go with fewer set pay structures, and so there's less variety and less likelihood that someone will shoot out uh, in a you know major direction. Um, oh, I, I should I should make a note at this point, by the way. We are not alleging that many of the major game publishers are collaborating to suppress worker wages. We are not alleging that. Incidentally, though, uh, would you like a video games related story brought to us from Activision Blizzard and the US Justice Department? Jesus Go Christ. On. Yeah, Activision Blizzard got sued by the US Justice Department for suppressing esports wages. Um, and they reached a settlement. Uh, I'm not sure if the settlement admitted liability, but essentially uh, Activision Blizzard went out of their way to rig the compensation for esports players to keep it artificially low, is what the was alleged by the US Justice Department. So, you know, just normal things, right? Oh, dear. And that, all of that, those shit terms, those, those shit conditions, that's before we get into industry layoffs, which you may have seen in the news recently. Um, just in the past little while... Despite reporting record profits, um, the games industry has essentially decided that it's going to lay off as many workers as physically possible. And Weird it's, how that keeps happening. Yeah. 
so like um we'll go with uh team 17 like they reported revenue increased 31 percent with gross profits up 18 percent um and they were sitting on a net cash pile of 45.2 million what does team 17 make again for the you know people who worms worms okay not just worms but you know alien breed yeah also dredge which you may have heard of that was a really cool game that came out this year oh awesome game Um, they they also published uh blasphemous and just recently blasphemous 2 which which is very good yeah which is incredible um so it's it's especially shit to see them shit canning people they've had a pretty good year yeah are they still are they still based in yorkshire or did they get like consumed by some like international conglomerate at some point i don't know uh, that's i'm being totally honest with you i don't know where they're based um, I mean, they're called Team Seventeen Group PLC this this time now. So you know, gone are the days when it was just a bunch of guys sitting around, you know, trying to make pixel worms. It's like a proper like investment. I mean, just the name Team Seventeen Group PLC tells you everything you need to know. But um, mm. they they're doing mass layoffs right now. Um, you know, it's been reported by Eurogamer that their quality assurance department will bear the brunt of layoffs with around fifty roles at risk. Um, and meanwhile, the CEO, Michael Patterson, is expected to leave as well. So no doubt with a golden parachute. That's just the way it is. Um, and they're just, they're just the tip of the iceberg. Like, that's actually quite small. So Epic Games and your favorite Ubisoft, Rob, um, have also announced significant workforce reductions. Um, you know, Epic Games made their layoffs public, whereas Ubisoft quietly conducted their own downsizing. Um, and it's, it's, you know, just been across the board. They've been cutting, you know, pretty much wholesale I don't have the actual figures for Ubisoft, but it was, uh, you know, following the closure of their London studio, which included 54 individuals um, dedicated to the Hungry Shark series, if anyone knows that. Um, and they also let go another 60 employees from customer service departments in North Carolina and Newcastle. So, yeah, it's, uh, they've been... Like, well, I mean, that's only well. right, because, you know, customer service at Ubisoft is already so good, you don't need all those people. Yeah. So to Just get an AI to do it. Well, maybe maybe Microsoft will because they've been hitting uh, Halo Infinite devs at uh, three hundred and forty three industries um, and other you know t- game teams across the company, including Bethesda. Um, they've just been you know, quietly cutting away. Um, even uh, you know Relic Entertainment were a victim. Um, their parent publisher Sega announced on May twenty third that Company Heroes Freemaker would cut one hundred twenty one employees. It's just like basically right now as we report just there's mass layoffs going on across the video game industry, despite, again, mass profits. Like, it's not like people are buying less games. The pandemic was a massive boom time in game sales. And yet, and yet, the rate of growth is the important thing. It's not the, it's not the gross profits. Yeah. It's how big an increase they are. And so here we are. They get shit conditions and then they're fired. Which, uh, which kind of, you know, leads into the other side of it, which is that their work being very precarious makes them very prone to abuse. And, uh, boy, so if we're going to want to talk about corporate culture and worker abuse. It's also, like, um, it's also a job where I imagine it, you're a constant, like, threat of being just replaced with some, like, new, yes. like, newbie. Because it's a job that, like, everyone, like, gamers just imagine that it's a a very like prestigious and like lucrative job and that b it's very easy and that an idiot could do it there is also an aspect that a lot of like um a lot of the workforce is into gaming enthusiasts they they mm-hmm. they yeah. you know let's just let's just say game, games games are art 
people want yeah. to express themselves with games and create and you know so a workforce that's very very eager very enthusiastic getting and create things um can be very easy to exploit so you know a lot of companies might might exploit fandom and hence we get yeah. we get um crunch i don't 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 you love games don't you crunch for the game come on yeah so Do it for the fans yeah, yeah. exactly yeah, and there there is there is a very a very sinister kind of underpinning there to that whole thing so we get we get um stories about about 100 hour work weeks and mm-hmm. that sort of incredible abuse being normalized um there was a, there was a story a while back from naughty dog about you know there was a construction team work working in 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 the building and um people somebody nearly died because the construction team didn't realize people were still working there and um some, yeah. some sort of uh something crashed through through the um through the ceiling and nearly killed somebody because they were working like crazy late hours and the construction team had had no idea that people were still working and it's like yeah it's 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 really shocking i mean don't 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 you want to work 120 hours a week you know otherwise the players of red dead redemption 2 will not have the realistic shitting horse why will why why would you deprive them of that? <laughs> oh, my my favorite detail from Red Dead Redemption Two, which no one noticed, it had to actually be put in the press, is that the horse testicles will like pull closer to the horse's body when they're in cold climates and will hang lower when they're in warm ones. There is no Skyrim need. model speaks. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a Skyrim model, there's no need for that. You do not need that in the game, but they put it in there for prestige, and so they could put it in articles and get a lot of like you yeah. know coverage in the media. That's just the polite and, way of uh, saying they can't get away with doing it for grot reasons. Well, yeah, the, the I, horse I, balls equivalent of the Metal Gear Solid Ace. <laughs> <laughs> but. Like I mean, very realistically, they also depend on the youth of the industry. Like they get, they they fund yeah. all of these, you know, Digitech etc. kind of um, startup colleges to train people in the specific skill set they need for the video game industry. They bring them in and they say, "Listen, you're going to have to work very hard, but eventually you'll go places." The implication being, "Don't worry, one day you will be like a senior producer or whatever, and you'll get to call the shots and get to make your own game," which is not true. But people buy it because they're young and naive, and so they you know throw themselves into a blender, working 100, 120 hour weeks when required. Um, deeply exploitative and cynical and this is before we get to the really horrible shit um, so again I'm going to do another shout out to James Stephanie Sterling who's commendably covered this stuff um, and highlighted these abuses wherever and whenever they appear uh, particularly on Ubisoft I recommend people go watch the Jimquisition videos on just abuse in the games industry there's one I want to mention which involves the uh, you know basically constructive dismissal of a woman from like uh, I believe it was Zenimax um, yeah. she was she was trans and she just got constructively dismissed for being trans, oh, basically, yeah, yeah, and denied medical care. And then in the end, they essentially said, "Well, we'll give you your medical care if you waive all liability." Essentially, um, as a way up. to keep her quiet. So they dismissed her for being trans, but then said, "Don't worry, we'll allow you to keep on." I think it was the uh, you know to find healthcare benefit that she'd already paid into. We'll allow you to keep transitioning on that if you sign this waiver essentially that you you know you know disclose and disabuse us of all 
liability. Um, just normal things, just okay. Yeah, but you do get to pick your pronouns in Starfield, though, so it kind of balances out. Whoms <laughs> can say whether it's good or I no, I can't even. Yeah, but then you get some weirdos screaming at you that that's not the oh. point of playing games. You also, I mean, it, it, it's, also, it's also, it's <laughs> also, it's not just. Oh my god. It's also not just indemnic from this because you also get situations like uh, again I, I don't mean to like be ragging on Zenimax and Bethesda here but we're going to um, Jen I believe it was Jeremy Sewell but they deserve it so yeah they do yeah uh, Jeremy Sewell the guy who did the major famous soundtracks for like the Elder Scroll series etc um, he got outed as apparently being a bit of a uh, you know a danger to women. Um, you know, there was a whole, like, you know, bunch of people came on um, social media talking about instances where he had been deeply inappropriate with them. And as a result, he basically got, you know, had to step back. But for years, that guy was, you know, able to do what he did in the game industry. And he's not uncommon. He's not alone because the power and balance and prestige attached to big names in the games industry com uh, combined with like a culture, which is very much like, are you part of management? If so, then cool, you're on the cocaine train. If you're not part of management, then you're part of the peons we grind into paste. This leads to a kind of culture of impunity, covering up of the superstars and the, uh, the others, uh, allowing, you know, basically rampant misogyny and sexual abuse to take place in the game development industry. Yeah, this was a, um, there was a thing in the, like, late 80s early 90s where like you'd see in magazines that like publishers would repeatedly try to like push the the line that game like game devs were the next rock stars like with the new rock stars yeah and you had like a few you had like a few names that people knew so like peter molino and archer mclean and like some others but the 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 sort of like unspoken part of that was that do you have any idea how many people like the music industry grinds up who want to be rock stars but don't make it mm. well on the subject of grinding there's one last thing i want to talk about on the subject of like corporate culture and worker abuse here uh, this is this is brand new so there's a brilliant game called el paso elsewhere that's just been released like i think yesterday i've played a little bit of it really enjoying it so far um the devs who made it self-funded um not because they wanted to but because they kind of had to and the they also have been unusually candid about what happened to them when they went to look for funding because they have a good game it is a good little game thoroughly recommend it if you like um max Payne and like alan wake and you know stuff in that kind of niche you it's definitely worth a look um they went looking for funding because the way it was going to work they were going to run out of money essentially um the game released on september it, oh, actually it wasn't out yesterday sorry it was september 26th was when it was supposed to come out um i just got it yesterday because i only heard about it yesterday um but they were set to run out of all money on october 1st so that's really tight um so the the lead of the studio went around and started to interact with the corporate world and trying to find investors and they all basically said you can't make games like this you you, you need crunch you need to like you know mistreat your workforce and he yeah. said, well, we're doing it now. We'd, we've done it before. We do it profitably. We're on time and on budget. And they come back and say, yeah, that's amazing. That's astounding. You can't do it like that, though. And his direct quote is, right, God help us. The assumption around the process of building games is that it must be harmful in some layer for it to have a chance of being successful, he says. Even on this game, again and again and again, we were being told by publishers and investors that our emphasis on player and team health was a measure of our lack of ambition. People kept asking me in rooms, what game do you really want to make for? What do you really want to make? What's your big swing? And I think it's a big swing to give people amazing games over and over again. And they each provide something different for their lives. So we stuck by that. And it nearly drove them out of business, essentially. 
they were like, well, you're not grinding your workers into pace, so you can't be making the maximum value return. So why would we invest in you? Plus also, also doing it the right way is a threat. Well, that too. So. So yeah, anything else anyone wants to bring up from the corporate culture and worker abuse side? Because there's it's 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 fucking depressing, frankly. Yeah, I know. I could be here all day talking about Ugh. that. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. It's it's just so fucking rife. Like, yeah, just. I'm just, I was just thinking about that class action suit that uh, the state of California filed against Blizzard Activision over like differences in pay and crunch and all that shit. It's just like, it's just so rife. It's yeah. I mean, yeah. how it's, many years out are we from the the Ubisoft spouses lawsuit? Oh, oh yeah. Uh that that was some time ago. Yeah, God. and it's it seems to have just kept getting worse. Yeah, and I think. This is personal opinion. I think a lot of a lot of larger companies in enjoy having that power over their over their employees. That it's not yeah. it's it's not just about this is this is they don't they don't crunch their workforce because it is efficient. It crunches entirely inefficient. And I think there there is there is a it's it's about it's about power. It's about we will crunch you because we can get away with it. It's also yeah. if people are like tired and exhausted, they're not really if you don't have excess energy with which to do things like unionize. Yeah. So, you know, it's a win win. But there's also I mean, okay, so we we we've talked a bit about like the effect on workers. Well, you know, sadly, there's a bunch of gamers who don't give a fuck about that. They're wrong, but they're out there. Unfortunately for those guys, um, these problems don't just extend to the difficult time workers have working on games. It also extends to the product that's actually produced. Because let's, let's talk a bit about game development processes and creativity under this model. Because one of the things we, you kind of encounter is if you are a large publisher in the era of like indie games now being a thing and being able to thanks to the wall garden you know you pay 30 percent you can get on steam and thanks to like indie uh, game you know journalism um they can get around a lot of the big publishers so what can the big publishers do but do things that indie crews could never do by pouring large amounts of money into making triple a products right but the thing about making a AAA product, your Red Dead Redemption 2, your The Last of Us Part 2, your latest Ubisoft bullshit, was it Mirage, Rob, is the new one that's coming oh, out? Oh, don't, oh, don't, don't, don't. <laughs> like, the problem is these are The sad thing is, it's like some sort of quavering heroin addict. I am actually looking forward to playing this, and my partner's going to be away all weekend, so I would just sit here in my pants and play it. And it's <laughs> just, God, I... I... <laughs> you have a problem, and we know it. It's just you know I'm 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 that I'm that guy with Jesus trying to pull the needle out of his arm. <laughs> well, like the the issue with these big things is that essentially there's it's a large ship, um, and keeping things predictable for finance requires constructive and constrictive planning, and restraints on worker creativity that can lock in bad ideas even when it's well past the point where everyone involved knows they're a bad idea. I'm going to promote uh, another video essay here. Uh, for anyone who's got the time, go look up H. Bomber Guy's video on Deus Ex Human Revolution's development and how he contrasts it with the original Deus Ex. Because, oh, that's an amazing uh, video. It's so good. It's, it's excellent. It is a tremendously good video. It's, it's an amazing video because it shows how in the original Deus Ex game, which was smaller scale just due to the nature of what counted as AAA at the time, they got to near the end 
and realized they didn't have a very good game, that many of the systems weren't fun and didn't work. And they were able to just chop it all up and rework it and, and start essentially like start again with the assets they already had, reorganizing it. And they made what many people consider to be a masterpiece. Flash forward to Deus Ex Human Revolution, they get to the end and it becomes crystal clear that they've got just bad elements on their hand. It's not all bad. There's still parts of the game which are fun. I enjoyed <laughs> yeah. it. They get to the end and realize that they just have to press one of four different buttons to see a cutscene. Well, exactly, <laughs> right? That's the, that's part of the problem. They also realized, oh shit, we forgot bosses and we forgot putting in like we forgot putting in bosses and we forgot putting in stealth ways to get around those bosses. Oh no. And just like the problem is by that point the oversights are so gaping and like the, the production schedule is so punishing and demanding and regimented, they couldn't fix it. They couldn't do what the original Deus Ex team did. And I'm not gonna say any more on this because again, watch H Bomber Guy's video, it's very very good and funny um but it lays out how the actual creativity and the production of good games is increasingly constrained by these like regimented schedules which are demanded in order to make investments predictable and by contrast i'd also add that there's basically no time available now for fuck around research and developmental and experimental prototyping like you need to come with a solid like you know ready built plan and product ready to go that your publisher will approve um, so yeah, is there, is there anything else you guys want to toss in on game development processes or creativity in it? Because oh. I went for an interview. I can't remember which, cause I did like a bunch of different, uh, like game devs I went around like toured the country one week mm -hmm. doing interviews and I went to one place and they, they had like a, it was like a real like sort of like development farm. They had like just people in different rooms and everyone was working on a different like licensed product. Okay. But one pair of guys were working on an action man game and um, they'd get in like three quarters of the way through the thing. And then like the decision came down from the license holder that they weren't allowed to show action man shooting anyone. <laughs> what? <laughs> Fantastic. And they just they were like they were just fucked. They were like, well, we we basically we made this a shooter because action man comes with rifles. So that was the natural <laughs> thing to do. And, <laughs> And then suddenly it's like, no, I, you can't show Action Man shooting people. So, But what, yeah, game, what, what, what does Action Man do when he's not supposed to shoot? D never mind. I, well, me. speaking of dumb interference, etc., the, the other element, like, so we've got the game development process and its impact on creativity, but there's also contents incentives and creativity impacted by all of this. Because you've got the Hollywood situation, of banking on known brands and properties, remakes, reboots, soft reboots, star power is like an attractive uh, factor. Oh, God. If you want to... Yeah, now, are yeah, we just like... going to talk about how there's the zillionth modern warfare every single year and it's just the same, <laughs> except that every time they seem to find a setting that's slightly more gross and appalling than the last one? Yes. <laughs> that is, that is yes, something that here. is happening, though. You you do have consolidation into into not just not just recognisable brands, but like powerhouse mega brands and yep. um a lot of that kind of um it dwarfs a lot of smaller projects so in the late 2000s 2010s you saw a lot of traditional you know get different genres that are around for a while kind of just being kind of smoothed out of gaming as a whole it all yeah. it, it was all you know certain genres overtook others and you know it's just just kind of railroading development of certain titles in to fit 
certain certain models and um like you saw you saw that with um say Res Resident Evil series becoming more more action orientated more you know straight straight up yeah. straight up um shoot shooting third person shooter more than more than a horror game it was more of an yeah. action action game with horror overtones and you saw that with the development of the third dead space game where you know which was terrible e yeah ea was like no pe people don't want people do not want horror games anymore they don't want single player games we we need multiplayer games we need yeah. you know we can't have this game that will make you know sell four or five million copies we need we need games that are sell 20 30 million copies it has to be this sort of this sort of game and yeah, it's it's of... the it's the it's the Marvel Marvel's Marvel's universification of the games industry, where everything must be the same and also tied into everything else, and also feature like plot elements from everything else. So you never stop, and everything just starts to resemble the same mulch. It's how everything ended up becoming uh, like a, a yeah. <laughs> uh, but like yeah, like this... <laughs> yeah, how everything became like a, just an open world thing where everything looked exactly the same and it was just like you just ran from point to point hoovering up the things yeah but um i, I always refer to this as the uh the old restaurants at taco bell thing from demolition man <laughs> yeah where it's like you know like call of duty became the number one like selling like the original the original instance of this was doom like doom just blew everything else out of the water people's minds were absolutely like just they couldn't believe that you could like look down the sights of a gun and shoot monsters and so suddenly everything was first person shooters mm -hmm. and then later on like call of duty just like wins and everything is just desperately trying to make like you know everything is just about war like remember when there was a period in the early 2000s where we just had nothing but world war ii games oh, yeah. for like oh, yeah. ages yeah. Medal of honor and battlefields yeah. yeah i mean this becomes like part of it is like there's a, a distorting effect from intellectual property ownership of where publishers are going oh we've got an intellectual property that we can use um and what can what can you do that essentially conforms to these current game trends using that property and it's yeah. like my dude i cannot make a my little pony game you know out of you know to, to conform to world war ii that's just not going to happen but they insist I on bet it you anyway. could if you tried though <laughs> yeah isn't there, a, isn't there a isn't there a plants versus zombies <laughs> pvp shooter jesus it feels like it's true but yeah, no, and it also, you know, it favors familiar over new. Actually, on the subject of intellectual property, there's the flip side to that, which is that it leads to the Nobody making... wants a Star Wars game. Well, <laughs> it also leads to weird life. Remember that for like there was like years hey. that would, they just could not they just could not make a Star Wars game because like everyone wanted to do like a single player one mm -hmm. that people would enjoy and publishers just weren't happy. Well it wasn't it wasn't no, just we, publishers, we fucking... it was publisher singulars because um yeah. yeah EA had the had the the, had the, the license. Star Wars license, yeah. Yeah and they would yeah, only which put been out thankfully fucking taken off them. Mm. They would only yeah, they put would out only... a certain number of games every, every few years. So you had Battlefront Two was the big the mm. big one. We didn't see anything Star Wars related previous for years. 
Yeah. There's also the other side, which is like they need to hold on to their intellectual properties, which can lead to really bizarre decisions. Again, going back to Zenimax, uh, they <laughs> owned Prey as an intellectual property. And they're like, oh, we need to make a game with this property, otherwise we lose the rights to it. Mm. What do we have in the shed? Oh, there's this cool game, it's like a System Shock updated for modern time. Yeah, no, that's a Prey game now. And um, because they only cared about it being published in order to keep the title, they didn't bother to properly promote it, didn't properly, you know, show and, and advertise yeah. what it was. Oh, and that, that, was, that was that was a real... Um, they, they, did, they did the developers dirty on that because oh, yeah. it also came out around the same time when Bethesda stopped sending out review codes entirely. Like they mm -hmm. had blacklisted some... some um, some websites but they just clean 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 out straight up not sending out review codes at all they 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 some put out some bullshit about saying well we want the players to be able to experience the game at the same time as the yeah it was bullshit so so they had they had nothing go like there was no there was no reviews coming out first and it was like oh this is dropping and I love that game, Prey twenty seventeen. Yeah, Phenomenal Moon game, Crash. probably one of my favorites of all time, and yeah, I didn't pick Prey. it up until like a year after it came out. Yeah, I was I was much similar, and like Moon Crash, the DLC for it was phenomenal as mm. well, and it just you know totally done dirty, and. Even when they're not fucking up the releases, there's the other side of this, which is we, we talked about like all these kind of contents which the publishers are kind of pushing for. Um, it also eats up development time because, you know, Anthem, like they, they wasted resources and time producing demos of what Anthem could be to please executives, yeah. and publishers, etc., who then came down with the most ridiculous notes in the world demanding changes and just like basically constantly producing this like Potemkin village of a game in order to get approval and funding in order to then try and, you know, make that Potemkin village, which you keep having to change and add on to, into an actual game. It's just an absolute nightmare. No wonder that fell over. That was, um, there was a similar thing with the original uh, Watch Dogs, wasn't there? Yes, there was. They showed, they showed a demo of that at, like, possibly E3, with some sort of trade show. They showed a demo, and it was, like, just complete smoke and mirrors. Well, that was, and everyone went. Everyone went wild for how good it was, and then everyone at the studio had to scramble to like actually make the game look like that. Well, that was more public advertising. This was. I'm more talking about like the internal, like pitching the publisher, if you will. Um, side side related to this kind of stuff, but um, Star Wars Squadrons mm. was a great example because you don't get a lot of flight sim games like that were combat flight sim type games like you don't get a lot of that stuff anymore it used to be more prevalent it's not something that's really produced as much but the reason it's not produced as much is because it's got a smaller audience and that's purely yeah. down to publishers just going nah fuck it we're not doing this and that one was only released as it was as like a test but from the very get go EA said like there will be fuck all in the way of support for this going forward like there would be nothing whatsoever you can keep your servers on but there were no DLC, there were no um, further development on it past like one patch that you can do. It, it, it's just, it's fucked. And you, it's good stuff that people want won't get produced because the, uh, the publishers won't see enough of a return off them. I'll throw in as well that when they do publish stuff, um, you know, part of the, the decision on all this is this idea of minimal viable product, which I've mentioned again and again whereby publishers want games out yesterday. And so there's a tension mm -hmm. between whether a bug is bad enough to patch it 
um, mm -hmm. and, you know, because it will damage returns or other players will put up with it. And, you know, you combine that with the indie scene early access kind of thing, that gave publishers, like, a, an excuse to, you know, force, like, the public to essentially accept buggy products that, like, set the bar for, like, tolerance um, at a lower, you know, there was more tolerance than there was before. And there's a paradox in this, which is that if they get it wrong, if they, if the players reject a game because it's too buggy and it's a mess, then the game that could have been good but got forced out the door early ends up floundering despite developers knowing that it could it wasn't any you know good. They needed more time to develop it, but the developer for, the publisher forced them to put it out the door, and then the publisher goes, "Well, this hasn't been well received. We've lost our shot," and then they pull any funding yeah. uh, for you know subsequent patches. Like, and there's the 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 culture which fucking gamers tm expect now is that something should be at least workable from launch and have continuous updates as it goes on as a live service so well, when something gets released as a finished package people are like well where's the other stuff yeah elden ring dead game <laughs> <laughs> but all of this i mean we kind of danced around it because you know we talk about it as a vi minimum viable product and we talked earlier about how essentially the games industry is set to try and wring profits from people. I guess we kind of need to talk about monetization because this is the real disorder, I feel, in the modern era, the thing that players feel most acutely. Um, and it starts, I mean, like at the thin end of a wedge is you've got your in-game purchases, which are pretty shady, like stuff where a game launches, there's already content on the disc at launch, but you charge to end up unlocking it. Day one DLC. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, this is the, the and, and it starts spilling over into the real economy as well, because you remember, we talked about on the podcast, like a bunch of episodes ago, about like how BMW was going to do like an unlock patch for their heated seats. <laughs> yes, we yeah. did. They had to withdraw that because everyone hated it, and like yes. they were getting no purchases. It was actually harming uh, car sales as well, which is fantastic, like good, uh, an example of natural good. boycotts Shouldn't, working. Should not be normalized in the first place. Yeah. No, it shouldn't. And the worst part is it doesn't just stop there. Like, it'd be one thing if it's like, oh, pay extra to unlock this character. But there's also the Insidious side where it's like game mechanics are made intentionally tougher and more boring and more demanding and there's more of a grind. But players can purchase so to the, unlock yeah. these hurdles. Right, Rob? Pay to skip the grind. Yeah. It's the Ubisoft special, I like to think of it as. <clears> to be fair, look, if that. you, you know, I you know, I don't know why I keep talking about this, but whatever, it's it's like the one of the few games I still play. So, like, it, honestly, if you need, like, the boosts to play Assassin's Creed, you're, I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand, because it's so easy to, like, <laughs> end up with more money than God. Like, it's, I don't, whatever. But that's a different side note than you altogether. No, but it's just a poisonous thing. It's like, it, again, we re referenced this, we talked about this in, Christ knows how many episodes ago. And as far as I understand, this is still like a major thing in Diablo 4, that like if you want to reach the top levels, you are basically required to pay yes. out the ass for gem packs and upgrade packs and uh, speed through packs because otherwise you literally do not have like there are not enough hours in the day for you to be at like the peak elite super level or, or whatever it is you want to be. Like even if you, yeah. I think we, we talked about it and some some gaming website had done the math that it would take like a hundred thousand dollars or more. That well, to, to more, like, more than that. Like I actually I actually had this here, Rob. Uh, it was Bellula News um, who yeah. are actually also, in, they're also an indie game studio. So, you know, go check them out. Um, 
they did the math, and I think their current count is somewhere around $200,000, last I checked. Wow. In order, to, it was Diablo Immortals, not Diablo 4, but close Yeah, enough, that was it. Frankly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was just, yeah, it was just like a, a sort of this generalized, like, it's it, it, it's like, yes, you can play this game without the, the microtransactions, but then you have to, like, you have to be sort of grinding and not having fun. Like, you have to be sort of... Do you want to know how like, many... Do, how, do, no, no, but like you, what you have to be like dedicated to the the like it's, to playing it's the game, like to how, wear you down. Yeah, yes. or like you have to be like somebody who's used to punishment. Like if you used to play EverQuest back in the day or something, like that was your life. Someone's maybe also worked out that if you wanted to, you know, like for, for fuck for two hundred thousand, you're going to do it the hard way. Uh, Seventeen years, I think, was the statistic of how long you'd have to play the game for to make it to that same point. So. You know, just normal things, right? And that's before. I'm just. I'm trying to work out whether or not I earn two hundred grand in seventeen years. I don't think so. No. <laughs> okay. Well, that means, from your perspective, Jamie, it would be economically worth it for you to sit down. <laughs> oh God. But so, so that's just in-game purchases, which are bad enough. There's also, and this is this is really insidious here, monetization of user content. So, oh, don't get me fucking started. Oh, I'm gonna get you started. So, it's there's a thin <laughs> end of a wedge with this, which is back in the day, Bethesda. I know I'm beating on them, but they deserve it. Um, they they would release horse armor DLC for Oblivion, and this very quickly. This is this is a direct intentional process. It's this, this, this is the, this is the podcast this. that mentions that horse armor more than any other living entity on this planet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, got to leave my brand on the pod, Rob. Horse <laughs> armor? I didn't hear about this. What's horse armor? Shaking my head. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not. It's I'm armor not, for horses. I'm not rising to the bait. Screw all y'all. No. Um, <laughs> but still, it's like so. This was part. What people have missed is it was part of a deliberate strategy where they wanted to monetize, you know, user-made mod content. And so they started by releasing their own. And then down the line, the plan was once people got used to paying for mod content, they'd then start introducing the idea of paying for user-made mod content, right? Um, it, it backfired dramatically. They picked the wrong community to try it with, and they did it in a very cat-candid way. But you know who hasn't done it in a cat-candid way? Have you heard of a game called Roblox? Yep. Yes. All I've, yeah. heard, it, all I've heard about that is oof, but yeah, that might just be me. Roblox is basically a video game development platform for children where children make games on it and then those games are sold and monetized and the children don't get any money from it. Well, because they're children, they don't need money. No, of course, they're just doing it for fun, right? So, you know, children get to make their own little world and, you know, others can come in to visit and, you know, the content of those worlds has been marketed and sold to others, essentially. Um... And they, they essentially, if you do it, um, love to you know, commodify the concept of pretend. <laughs> was um, was Roblox the one where like there was a trend for a while of people recreating the troubles? What? Yes, I think yes. I'm pretty sure that is a thing. There's like, it, it's like anything else like that where they have like RP servers and stuff like that. But for some reason. Belfast was a choice. <laughs> <laughs> the mini game of putting the correct bomb in the trash can, yeah. Yeah, oh, it's, uh, oh, it's fucking gamers. Yeah. But yeah, but, you know, it, it's part of the industry is how can we get our users to make the content 
that we can then sell to our other users. Um, and of course, it's, it's working on children first because they don't know any better. They don't understand the value of their labor. So, but if that's bad for monetizing user content, we get into the famous one, the one that we all know and love, gambling. Sorry, I meant to say loot boxes. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, Rob said it earlier, skin a box for gambling is where it really heads. And, you know, there's a whole thing like, you know, um, Blizzard introduced loot boxes into Overwatch. It's wildly successful. I bought some. I'm going to confess to it. Um, like, you know, they're, they're addictive. They're designed to essentially be a kind of gacha that solely gets more and more investment out of players. Yeah. And when they did it, when it was done in, like, Overwatch, there was the side part, which is if you played, you gradually got boxes yourself, so it wasn't quite as insidious. But the modern games industry is basically loot boxes all the way down, as far as I'm concerned. Like... Any anyone? I mean, they, but this is also like um, I mean, again, like, but is, is isn't this like massive in a lot of like mobile games, like phone games especially? Yeah. Because like all I see is just like all those ads for like I don't know, goblins and gold, basically, which looks like fucking dreadful. And all I can think of what I see is just like oh no, that's just a skinner box, basically. It'll just you need to constantly be be feeding money into it. I mean, yeah. I mean, I remember um. Remember when the year finally brought back Dungeon Keeper? Oh, oh God, God, yes, that was so and you had sad. To buy gems to, to dig things faster. Yeah, yeah. It's like you can wait an hour or buy a gem at like a pound. It was really, really sad. It was, it was really heartbreaking, frankly. Mm. And that's, and that's also. I mean, we mentioned Diablo Four. That's what it basically is. It's a loot box, you know, uh, gambling platform. But the, the worst of it is even the platforms which aren't like there's not real money exchanging hands directly like, for example, Counter-Strike Global Offensive, um, there's an insidious size to this because because they use what is basically gambling mechanics, they allow for a, a tertiary actual gram gambling websites to crop off of the back of them. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but the CSGO scene for a long time had a whole bunch of websites which were devoted to essentially gambling on the outcomes of people's draws from loot boxes yeah. in the game, and they were specifically targeted at children by a whole bunch of online like personalities who you know advertised yeah. this and had co-ownership in these platforms themselves so even when these mechanics aren't directly monetized in the product they still create an ancillary industry that then you know essentially uses them for monetization purposes and does it with kids so this this is this is the reason why as as a streamer as a content creator influencer I won't play games with those kind of monetization practices. Yeah. Just yeah. just flat out, I don't stream them, don't recommend them, or otherwise promote them. And I think, like, that was one of the best decisions I've ever made. I don't want any part of that. And I mean, I I know I know what my what my role is as as a video games commentator and streamer or whatever. I know. I'd, basically an, an arm of uh, arm of marketing mm. but um very keenly aware of that so i absolutely won't with those types of games and that was one of the best decisions i've ever made in my life as that... professionally i mean i think it's it's definitely the only ethical thing to do because the sad thing is like this so i i watch streamers online you know yeah. Um, not just yourself. I've, I've you know watched you a few times, but I'm also I, I quite like. Um, there Rachel are better. Chaos. That's it's okay. You can say that. 
No, no, it's with my right. It's with. It's and with now my we get like, to the portion where we name names. Oh, the, 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 the airing, of, the airing of beeves. No, like I, I will sit down and watch you play Liza P. But my partner is done like Dark Souls games, so when I'm watching stuff with her, it's like we'll watch um, Chill Chaos or Jeremy Dooley or whatever, who are who are fun streamers who are, you know I enjoy watching their content. But here's the thing: on um, Twitch.tv forward slash Praxiscast. Uh, yes, that we also <laughs> from time to time. But but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like even these guys, they they do stuff like fucking uh, you know opening Pokemon decks and things like that, and you know other random content because it's addictive because it draws mm. eyeballs. And okay, it's not quite as bad as it being like in game, you know, digital here you can play this game, etc. But it's still it's the same impulse that's being presented and they do it because it works because it draws eyeballs because there's nostalgia people going oh yeah i played pokemon back in the day here's you know all the uh oh there's a charizard that's really cool and it's like you know it is utilizing that kind of gambling impulse um because it works and the game industry does it really cynically um and really at length mm -hmm. so yeah i mean we could be here for hours talking about the gambling side of it but perhaps the more slightly oh, not gambling though. What was it? What was the thing EA said? Surprise mechanics. Oh yeah, surprise mechanics. Surprise mechanics. Really good. <laughs> it's like Bobby Kotick jumping out of a cake when you least expect it. Ugh. <laughs> well, there's also the push for games as a live service, which is what this kind of comes down to, because rather than having necessarily loot boxes, instead you have, like we said before, treadmill content. You play the game, you're put on a treadmill and you need to buy season passes and the seasons reset every so often and there's rewards you can only unlock during that period. Um, that's been like the major push and really like the number of games which have converted to, hey, buy our game pass and play a sufficient amount of the season and you can unlock these special rewards and then the tiering of game passes. Yeah. Like, it's pretty grim. Call of Duty is really bad for this. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I did. I mean, again, I, I've stopped playing those types of games like a long time ago. Like, is there? Is, it, it, does it matter that you play on like the seasonal game or just the open free game? Like, is there? Is there? Like, is it? it, it quote unquote, is it worth it to spend this extra money on the season pass or the whatever do that? Like, is there something cool in the season apart from some skins or some shit that you know? Like, it, is there? Is there anything that actually makes it? Worth it? Yeah, you can make your little the, war criminal the... avatar wear a Santa hat. Yeah, it's uh, it's pure. <laughs> it depends on the game, I would imagine. Well, it's also it's monetized formal fear of missing out. Like, mm. oh, but I might never be able to get that skin again unless I play now and unless I progress. And oh, I I don't I physically don't have the time to play enough in order to progress enough to unlock that thing. But I could buy this pass, which means that every hour I play is actually worth five or whatever. Like you know, they, they rely on that. Yeah. Um, so, so in terms of an origin story, because, I don't know, is this just like, did people once upon a time look at, because I, what I remember quite clearly was like in the old old days of World of Warcraft, is like people would sell their top level, like their level 60 accounts or whatever was max at the time, to like old, literally just on Amazon or something before Blizzard monetized that system for mm -hmm. itself. Was that like sort of the, I mean, it won't be the first one because there's always something before that. But is that sort of the moment where do you reckon like the gaming industry looked at that and went, ah, we can we can do that, but, you know, in a different way, you know, it, it, Maybe. I actually um I actually mentioned on P I think it was Peace at Home uh last week. But in the nineties someone I knew was like a, a games master on a multi user dungeon, which is like a text MMO. Mm -hmm. 
and they got someone in America sent them like two big boxes of like rare magic cards that they've been collecting for years in exchange for like them just creating a bunch of gold out of nothing on the game. I think you mentioned this before. They got done for it, didn't they? As in, like they got yeah, kicked off yeah. of being ad- admin. Yeah, they got they got uh, like their account got deleted, but they still they got the, they got the box of magic cards through the post, and the other guy got his gold. I don't know whether he got got it taken off him or not, but but like people have always just sure, sure. I mean, I, I wasn't suggesting that, that people have that... always attached like absurd value to in-game progress for some reason. Do you know what I mean? Like. Mm. No, no, of course. I like. I wasn't so. suggesting that this was like the very first time or anything along those lines. Like, no, I know. I'm just. Was it like? Was it sort of a uh, in terms of like a big bang moment? Because maybe that's just the way I remember it. That pe- that you know you could, uh, you know, there were of course the wonder stories of people gaming for several hours and then selling their accounts for absurd prices because it was that kind of time. But maybe that that was the first time it was big enough and the market was like substantial enough. I mean, probably because World of Warcraft was like nothing else before in terms of popularity wasn't it yeah. yeah i think i think a large part of it was people like developers excuse me looking at world of warcraft and going how do we turn our not mmo into something that people want to engage with every day and it kind of follows okay well w- world of warcraft has dailies so how about we institute dailies how do we make this work what's the incentive yeah. we can do so i think that's the direct line it also i mean the thing is well there's for a long period we had a real problem with publishers. It's starting to change a little bit now, um, just because of the success of a lot of high-profile, like single-player games. But you know, for a long time, publishers were basically going, "Is your game a live service? No, then go fuck yourself." Whenever anyone went to yeah. like pitch them, and this directly led again. I'm beating on Bethesda here. Um, Redfall uh, was a game that was released recently, and the inside scoop and all that is that. No one really knew what it was meant to be because they kept getting conflicting things come down. They initially started out thinking, oh, we'll make something that's kind of like a Far Cry 3 kind of game. Or then maybe we'll make it like a Left 4 Dead 2 kind of game. And then it was like, no, no, it's got to be a live service kind of game. And, you know, just totally pulling the development team in nine different directions at once um, because of this pressure to, you know, take something and make it more online and not just more online but more monetizably online as a live service yeah. i mean that's the thing like making your game a live service or just always online um when it's a single player game like fucking hitman mm. is like just massively considered a no-brainer because it like eliminates piracy doesn't it if everyone has to be online all the time plus if everyone's if everyone's online all the time you're collecting data that you can then use for various purposes. Yeah, and then you know? you, you also have a wonderful you know events when they cock it up like the payday free launch, so uh, which I'm still sore about. Um, so yeah, like I mean, the thing is that 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 happened with like Hitman Three as well. Oh, did it? Just like the Hitman One into Hitman Two, it was like all the levels from Hitman One can be imported into Hitman Two, but your progress can't. Okay. That sucks, but, but that was fine. Yeah, that was fine because like, um, they they added like new mechanics to the game mm-hmm. and like added a bunch of stuff that like mirrors didn't like mirrors didn't actually do anything in the in Hitman One, you know. But in Hitman Two, like the AI could spot you, the NPCs could spot you in a mirror if you ran up behind them, mm-hmm. and like they added like foliage you could hide in and a bunch of other things. So playing through the levels was like yeah. fine because you were le- you got new mechanics. They played a little bit differently. Going from Hitman 2 into Hitman 3, they promised you'd be able to import your progress. 
which be like why wouldn't you be able to you, you've got an account you have to sign into to play the game why can i not keep my why can i not take my progress from the pc to the playstation or like from two to three and they they added that as a feature but like it basically involved you had to go to a website and because they were launched like hitman 2 had been on steam and hitman 3 was an, an epic exclusive it meant you had to go to a website that they'd set up and like log into your steam account and then log into your epic account and have them manually transfer the database um but they didn't open that fucking service until the game went live so no one could get into it it was like the the three the three thousand stooges trying to get through a door amazing absolutely and amazing. the whole thing was down for like the first like three days launches are just launches of, of any game that's even remotely online are just regularly a clusterfuck it's just expected now they never like Blizzard, especially whenever they launch like a new Diablo or a new fucking anything. Like they never put enough because it's like, well, you could pay extra to have extra services, like, extra servers running on launch day, or because you or know you there's going to be like or you could, tons of people in, or you could do a Sim Cities because that famously went down in flames for that reason. Yeah, but why would you pay the extra when you could just not and have people queue to get in, and like you know, what are they going to do? Not buy your game? Fuck them. You know what I mean? Like, well, your your Activision Blizzard, everyone buys your game. I think I think just well, like ju- in the same way, people who are always online are a mess. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no. You know, it's yeah. it's not a good thing to be always online. No, no, it's not. You need to take some time to yourself to like you know do assassinations in private. Um, yeah. Wait until wait until someone adds a microtransaction for you to touch grass. <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> uh, waiting for that Elden Ring DLC. Anyway, um... but there is there there is like um, the flip side of that is that there are just straight up single player games with no bullshit that are doing gangbusters. Um, yeah, sales yeah. The the. Hats off to PlayStation on on this regard. They had new IPs that um, did remarkably well, like uh, the Horizon Zero Dawn and um, was it Ghost of Tsushima was huge. Ghost of Tsushima was fantastic. Was really good. Was really good. The art direction on that was incredible. Like yeah, yeah. The PlayStation exclusives are one of the the last bastions for like high quality single player experiences yeah. as far as I can see. And and part part of the reason is because essentially PlayStation, they've got their walled garden, they get to charge people for using their publication service, their platform, their PlayStation, and so they can afford to not squeeze their studios as much and let them produce better content. Well also also because like they are they are genuinely making something that no one else bothers to make. So like it's a it's a good reason to buy because I don't know anyone that owns like the, the latest Xbox. I know a bunch of people with PlayStation fives. But I don't know anyone with the Xbox One or whatever the yeah. fuck it was called. Well, I mean, that's why that's why Microsoft's been buying up everything. They they think, oh well, they've been making good games. Therefore, what we need is more games that will attract people. Missing. Well, they've got their their big their big draws Game Pass, isn't it? But you can well, also get that on the PC. That's that's interesting. You mentioned that, Jamie, because the last the last area we're going to talk about is streaming games and subscription game services, including like Game Pass. You know, um, don't like how that... we've completely skipped over the the success of the Ouya. <laughs> I'm gonna confess ignorance. What's for you, yeah? <laughs> Nothing, mate. What's for you? With you? 
once the, more, I will say. It was the Stadia of its day. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Right, okay. Sure. <laughs> the, the mark of quality. <laughs> but I mean, well, this, you know, if we, if we started this whole conversation with, you know, sort of the capitalist logic of cons- consolidation and rent-seeking in the video games industry, but, you know, capitalism is... is bad at many things but is there you know is there a point in saying you know okay so if there are certain franchises that have actually done remarkably well by not being horrible always online skinner boxes and you know we were talking about ghost of tsushima and i think Baldur's gate 3 is probably yeah in that lineup as well like isn't there like a a sort of an answer to say because like if capitalism is good at anything it's like taking looking at the things that fall outside its current logic and like just absorbing that as part of its re as part of its being I, and like evolving into it like can you say like will they not look at stuff like Baldur's gate 3 and say okay actually there is this demand for more story driven single player expansive gaming we could put some money into that or is it just we will do the i mean the easy answer is they'll make you know 17 shitty knockoffs that aren't quite as good but no, I, I i think rob i mean it actually fits directly with what we're now talking about because I think the the subscription gaming services model is the direct answer to this, essentially, which is you don't need to have the person always playing a specific game online and giving you money and rents if the platform, the service through which they're playing their games is a rental service that you pay a subscription for every month, if that makes sense. So rather than having people playing Call of Duty all the time and purchasing the Call of Duty Battle Pass or whatever the fuck it's called, instead you have them playing games for Windows Live or whatever, where they can be playing Call of Duty or they can be playing the excellent Pentiment or they can be playing whatever the other, you know, the Halo or whatever. And just by them being in that ecosystem, you're getting your check. So that gives them a way to kind of pursue it. And I'll be honest, I don't hate that system. I don't well, know whether that's like because I haven't fully considered the ramifications see, I, of it, or I, because I'm just worn down from decades of bullshit at this point. But like, we, I think without Game Pass, we just would not have got like, like Josh, Josh yes, Sawyer well, would not have been allowed to make Pentiment. Well, see, this is the know? thing because like you know, so we had Josh Sawyer on uh, some time ago, Casey, and he was chatting to us, yeah, and he talked about the benefits for his studio about how essentially it's a kind of game that would have been too risky for a studio to make because it's kind of it's too niche it's too kind of out there it's a it's not you know very easily marketable there's a lot of people who won't even give it a second look but by going to microsoft and going oh hey we've got a game for your you know game subscription service and you pay us a flat fee and we make it it let them do it by it being predictable and that's all cool except jamie i I was kind of with you i thought this is good right but the more i've looked into it more i've realized that capitalism is going to fuck it up because we have a model for this inevitably netflix yes it's the netflix model which is yeah you know subscription services impact on the shows or games that they feature so there's some artisanal bespoke niche stuff made for clout to help give the service profile but what are the effects on the other properties what are the effects on the small studios and what are the effects over time essentially you just need to kind of look at netflix to see the direction it ultimately goes in under this logic so we will get like a glut of good games i think at the start um, like your pentiments, but, yeah. but I mean the the thing is that the the big the big thing everyone hates Netflix for is like producing one or maybe two seasons of a good show and then just canceling it. Yeah, it's, it's not. It's canceling Santa Clarita Diet. That's what everyone hates. You, yeah. you know what? This this is where I have to say that's off to Gabe Newell 
at least Valve could count to two. the other the other thing is about how it morphs the games industry because i did a lot of like you know casey mentioned this in passing and i was like i really should know more about this um there's a real problem in that you know the first before all these these subscription services are going to be purely additive they're just going to add existing ways for people to get value but they you know um new ways for people to pay for a game but they don't instead it's turning out that they're subtractive of existing business and they depress sales outside of the platform um which means that you know small studios that make a big breakthrough hit uh they're just not going to get big breakthrough returns off of it they're going to get their fixed small studio fee that they previously negotiated yeah. with microsoft etc um and so it essentially means they're more at the mercy of the publisher so it's not the best no. no i i i like to look at um spotify for example where mm. you know you have a lot of artists saying look we 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 don't see cents from you know thousands of thousands of streams and um, I, I think that's the, the ideal model is that, um, you know, the platform holder will, you know, Spotify or, or Netflix and, or Game Pass, whatever, in whatever example, people will pay for, pay for the service, but that the, the platform holder aren't going to really be too bothered about uh, paying out to the to the developers or the smaller publishers and you know it's they 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 might not like release their num streaming numbers that's what well, were... that's what some something like um netflix have been doing they're not releasing the the, the viewer numbers to the to the creatives and um reminds me of another another story recently about how um Aaron Paul of Breaking Bad fame said recently he never saw a cent from streaming on Netflix. And, Fucking hell. Yeah. You know, the, the ideal system for, for some kind of platform holder like that is to charge for something and never never pay out. And um, that's... Uh, I mean that's what they're. Um, that's one of the things they're yeah. fighting for in the... The actor strike, actor strike. Is, is, yeah. is about yeah. is specifically about that, yeah. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna drive us towards a conclusion at this point because we've been going on for quite a while, um, and I think it's worth kind of asking a question, which is: Is there a solution to this? And what are our final thoughts? And I think there's there's three there's three things we can put down. Violence. There's boy. <laughs> okay, four things we can Communism. put down. <laughs> yeah, that's that's part of violence. Anyway, haven't you heard? And you know that's what the conservatives are talking about this week. Anyway. Um, so people would say, oh, what about consumer-led boycotts? Which just don't work. Like, trying to organise consumer choice around this only works... Remember that, um, remember that classic image of the fucking... Modern Steam Warfare. For like, yeah, yeah. No, no Modern Warfare, like, bring back private servers or whatever it was. And, like, they the, were going to boycott it and, the, like, three-quarters of the people in the group are actu actually playing the game <laughs> they were boycotting. Yeah. And it's just, it doesn't work. Beyond a very small scale, you can't get boycotts to have an influence because you can only wrangle a small group of people comparatively. Yeah. And then there's, so there's, there's, there's really two other options. One is antitrust. 
And for anyone who doesn't know, antitrust is when the government steps in to stop too many mergers and keep publishers competing with each other by keeping them small to maintain oh, the overall health you of know, the market. The, 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 uh, what, what, what's the latest giant mega fucking merger again that got waved through in the end? It was uh, Microsoft Act- Activision Blizzard. Yeah, Microsoft <laughs> yeah. Activision Blizzard. Yeah. Now the courts are really on the ball on that one. Activision Blizzard well, it, King. Just, just to just to jump in and clarify, it's Activision Blizzard King because King is the uh, mobile division of yeah. ABK, ah. Um, ah. so that's the Candy Crush people and everything like that. So oh, there shit. is a, there, there, it's not it's not just the Diablos and the El- Elder Scrolls and oh no sorry that's a different company entirely. It's not just the Diablos and the World of Warcrafts and the Starcrafts and all 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 of those lovely games. It's also you know your your the Candy your, Crush. The Candy Crushes and, and the like. It's a, the hu- it's a huge mobile mobile division that that Microsoft is buying there. Yeah, I remember well, actually because I was reading some of the papers mm-hmm. around that that merger for like an episode idea ended up basically binning off. But like that, a huge, huge, huge amount of their um, their money these days does does come out of the the mobile market, and that yeah. that that is probably going to be bigger in the future than even like. The whatever you know, horseshit Activision and or Blue yeah. and or Blizzard come up with next, and is 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 sad as a consequence. Like it basically, the merger in the end got waved through. Though I have seen a story that the EU Competition Commission is looking for comments on this merger because they're starting to get a little yeah, bit cold feet about it. But yeah. ha- governments yeah. looking for comments is not the same as uh, we'll do something. Like yeah. it, it's, it's, and also like that's not to say you shouldn't do it because having some experience of that process in and the European Commission, those fuckers will read anything. Um, so like feel free to like submit your complaint or like your your disagreement with it. But like unless you have a very large legal team and a lobbying arm, eh. yeah. And so that's the thing: governments don't do antitrust, which leaves us with unionization, which is to unionize the games industry so that yeah. developers can directly fight back against many of these pressures and distorting practices. So, and that's a, that's a big topic. That's a very big topic, one I don't think we've got time for tonight. Um, but no. if, it's any, if it's any consolation, there have been a rash of, you know, unionization efforts across the industry going back the last two years. Good. Um, and one only presumes yep. that as these layoffs have come into focus, that's only going to light a fire under it as more and more people go, hang on, they had record profits and they're laying people off. So, fingers crossed. I don't know. Yeah. We got, we... I can't wait for the inevitable gamer, gamers TM backlash against unionization. Well, don't worry. I'm sure the Pinkertons are working on grassrooting. Sorry, yeah. AstroTurf. <laughs> so, in conclusion, have we got any final thoughts on the state of the games industry? It's bad. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's bad. It's capitalism and therefore it is bad. That, that, that about sums it up, I think. Like, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. I think we've been at this long enough. Listen, Casey, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, where can people where can people find you if they want to see more of your stuff? Uh, Twitch.tv slash Casey Explosion is a good place to find me. I stream, general, generally speaking, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Sunday. Awesome. Well, I can recommend it. Um, the Liza P stream yeah, has been good stream. incredibly entertaining. Thank you. Um, and, and I also have a Steam Curator page, also just Casey Explosion. Nice. I didn't know that, actually. I'm going to follow you there. Oh, it's it's very good. It's where I put all the games that I recommend. The good games on there, and I should know, because I put them there. 
because you recommend them. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> so it, that's that's a funny thing because there's um, the the whole curator system on Steam is actually it's 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 a weird little topic that I'd love to get into sometime. But uh, it's actually quite good because if if you if you follow a curator their recommendations will will start to show up on the steam homepage so there's there's a quite a degree of you know you you can as as a as a user by following certain curators that you that you trust that you like you can kind of kind of tweak your own experience of what what your steam homepage will be so you'll get recommendations so for for example there's there is uh curator that i would follow like um there's a you know Je- jeff gertzman has a uh has a curator page yeah. he, you know so it'll, it'll show up games that that uh that he would recommend you know it's 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 a very it's it's actually a very useful quite powerful system and a good way to get exposure to things you otherwise would never see yeah because they're not paying valve to promote them so no and um the the other but there, there is, there is a flip side of that: is that Valve don't give a shit about it and um, have not updated the system well. And there's, <laughs> there's been a lot of really shitty curators that are just like spammy memes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, no, I've been great, Casey. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. No, I had a whale at the time. Um, boom, boom. Because, you know, Wales gaming. Anyway, I'm very tired. Let's, let's uh, the episode. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's our cue to cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, you can, if you're a listener and you want to support us, you can find us on uh, patreon.com forward slash praxiscast. You can also buy our merch at um, praxiscast.tmail.com. And you can catch us on Twitch alongside Casey. Uh, not at the same time, but we stream on Wednesdays and Thursdays. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's twitch.tv forward slash praxiscast. And I think that's it. So um, bye for now. Yeah. Yep. Cheerio, yep. folks. See ya. See ya.